Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of The Secret Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter One. There is no one left. When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true too. She had a thin little face and a little thin body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government, and had always been busy and ill himself, and her mother had been a great beauty, who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all, and when Mary was born she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the Mem Sahib she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way, and when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her ayah and the other native servants, and as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying. By the time she was six years old, she was so tyrannical and selfish a little pig as ever lived. The young English governess who came to teach her to read and write disliked her so much that she gave up her place in three months, and when other governesses came to try to fill it, they always went away in a shorter time than the first one. So if Mary had not chosen to really want to know how to read books, she would never have learned her letters at all. One frightfully hot morning, when she was about nine years old, she awakened feeling very cross, and she became crosser still when she saw that the servant who stood by her bedside was not her ayah. "'Why do you come?' she said to the strange woman. "'I will not let you stay. Send my ayah to me.' The woman looked frightened, but she only stammered that the ayah could not come, and when Mary threw herself into a passion and beat and kicked her, she looked only more frightened and repeated that it was not possible for the ayah to come to Mrs. Sahib. There was something mysterious in the air that morning. Nothing was done in its regular order, and several of the native servants seemed missing while those whom Mary saw slunk or hurried about with ashy and scared faces. But no one would tell her anything, and her ayah did not come. She was actually left alone as the morning went on, and at last she wandered out into the garden and began to play by herself under a tree near the veranda. She pretended that she was making a flower-bed, and she stuck big scarlet hibiscus blossoms into little heaps of earth, all the time growing more and more angry, and muttering to herself the things she would say and the names she would call Sadie when she returned. "'Pig! Pig! Daughter of pigs!' she said, because to call a native a pig is the worst insult of all. 
She was grinding her teeth and saying this over and over again when she heard her mother come out on the veranda with someone. She was with a fair young man, and they stood talking together in low, strange voices. Mary knew the fair young man who looked like a boy. She had heard that he was a very young officer who had just come from England. The child stared at him, but she stared most at her mother. She always did this when she had a chance to see her, because the Mem Sahib, Mary used to call her that oftener than anything else, was such a tall, slim, pretty person, and wore such lovely clothes. Her hair was like curly silk, and she had a delicate little nose which seemed to be disdaining things, and she had large laughing eyes. All her clothes were thin and floating, and Mary said they were full of lace. They looked fuller of lace than ever this morning, but her eyes were not laughing at all. They were large and scared, and lifted imploringly to the fair boy officer's face. "'Is it so very bad?' "'Oh, is it?' Mary heard her say. "'Awfully,' the young man answered in a trembling voice. "'Awfully, Mrs. Lennox. You ought to have gone to the hills two weeks ago.' The Mem Sahib wrung her hands. "'Oh, I know I ought,' she cried. "'I only stayed to go to that silly dinner-party. What a fool I was!' At that very moment such a loud sound of wailing broke out from the servants' quarters that she clutched the young man's arm, and Mary stood shivering from head to foot. The wailing grew wilder and wilder. "'What is it? What is it?' Mrs. Lennox gasped. "'Someone has died,' answered the boy officer. "'You did not say it had broken out among your servants?' "'I did not know,' the men sahib cried. "'Come with me, come with me,' and she turned and ran into the house." After that appalling things happened, and the mysteriousness of the morning was explained to Mary. The cholera had broken out in its most fatal form, and people were dying like flies. The ayah had been taken ill in the night, and it was because she had just died that the servants had wailed in the huts. Before the next day three other servants were dead, and others had run away in terror. There was panic on every side, and dying people in all the bungalows. During the confusion and bewilderment of the second day, Mary hid herself in the nursery and was forgotten by everyone. Nobody thought of her, nobody wanted her, and strange things happened of which she knew nothing. Mary alternately cried and slept through the hours. She only knew that people were ill, and that she heard mysterious and frightening sounds. Once she crept into the dining-room and found it empty, though a partly finished meal was on the table, and chairs and plates looked as if they had been hastily pushed back when the diners rose suddenly for some reason. Child ate some fruit and biscuits, and being thirsty she drank a glass of wine which stood nearly filled. It was sweet, and she did not know how strong it was. Very soon it made her intensely drowsy, and she went back to her nursery and shut herself in again, frightened by the cries she heard in the huts and by the hurrying sound of feet. The wine made her so sleepy that she could scarcely keep her eyes open, and she lay down on her bed and knew nothing more for a long time. Many things happened during the hours in which she slept so heavily, but she was not disturbed by the wails and the sounds of things being carried in and out of the bungalow. When she awakened she lay and stared at the wall. The house was perfectly still. She had never known it to be so silent before. She heard neither voices nor footsteps, and wondered if everybody had got well of the cholera and all the trouble was over. She wondered also who would take care of her now her ayah was dead. There would be a new ayah, and perhaps she would know some new stories. Mary had been rather tired of the old ones. She did not cry because her nurse had died. She was not an affectionate child, and had never cared much for anyone. 
The noise and hurrying about and wailing over the cholera had frightened her, and she had been angry because no one seemed to remember that she was alive. Everyone was too panic-stricken to think of a little girl no one was fond of. When people had the cholera, it seemed that they remembered nothing but themselves. But if everyone had got well again, surely someone would remember and come to look for her. But no one came, and as she lay waiting the house seemed to grow more and more silent. She heard something rustling on the matting, and when she looked down she saw a little snake gliding along and watching her with eyes like jaws. She was not frightened, because he was a harmless little thing, who would not hurt her, and he seemed in a hurry to get out of the room. He slipped under the door as she watched him. "'How queer and quiet it is!' she said. "'It sounds as if there were no one in the bungalow but me and the snake.' Almost the next minute she heard footsteps in the compound, and then on the veranda. They were men's footsteps, and the men entered the bungalow and talked in low voices. No one went to meet or speak to them, and they seemed to open doors and look into rooms. "'What desolation!' she heard one voice say. "'A pretty, pretty woman. I suppose a child, too. I heard there was a child, though no one ever saw her.' Mary was standing in the middle of the nursery when they opened the door a few minutes later. She looked an ugly, cross little thing, and was frowning because she was beginning to be hungry and feel disgracefully neglected. The first man who came in was a large officer she had once seen talking to her father. He looked tired and troubled, but when he saw her he was so startled that he almost jumped back. "'Barney!' he cried out. "'There's a child here! A child alone! In a place like this! Mercy on us! Who is she?' "'I'm Mary Lennox.' the little girl said, drawing herself up stiffly. She thought the man was very rude to call her father's bungalow a place like this. I fell asleep when everyone had the cholera, and I've only just wakened up. Why does nobody come? This is a child no one ever saw, exclaimed the man, turning to his companions. She's actually been forgotten. Why was I forgotten? Mary said, stamping her foot. Why does nobody come? The young man, whose name was Barney, looked at her very sadly. Mary even thought she saw him wink, his eyes as if to wink tears away. "'Poor little kid,' he said. "'There's nobody left to come.' It was in that strange and sudden way that Mary found out that she had neither father nor mother left, that they had died and been carried away in the night, and that the few native servants who had not died also had left the house as quickly as they could get out of it, none of them even remembering that there was a Mrs. Sahib. That was why the place was so quiet. It was true that there was no one in the bungalow but herself and the rustling little snake. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 2 of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Mistress Mary Quite Contrary Mary had liked to look at her mother from a distance, and she had thought her very pretty, but as she knew very little of her, she could scarcely have been expected to love her or to miss her very much when she was gone. She did not miss her at all, in fact, and as she was a self-absorbed child, she gave her entire thought to herself, as she always had done. If she had been older, she would have no doubt been very anxious at being left alone in the world, but she was very young, and as she had always been taken care of, she supposed she always would be. What she thought was that she'd like to know if she was going to nice people, who would be polite to her and give her her own way, as her ayah and the other native servants had done. 
She knew that she was not going to stay at the English clergyman's house where she was taken at first. She did not want to stay. The English clergyman was poor and had five children nearly all the same age, and they wore shabby clothes and were always quarrelling and snatching toys from each other. Mary hated their untidy bungalow and was so disagreeable to them that after the first day or two nobody would play with her. By the second day they had given her a nickname which made her furious. It was Basil who thought of it first. Basil was a little boy with impudent blue eyes and a turned-up nose, and Mary hated him. She was playing by herself under a tree, just as she had been playing the day the cholera broke out. She was making heaps of earth and paths to a garden, and Basil came and stood near to watch her. Presently he got rather interested and suddenly made a suggestion. "'Why don't you put a heap of stones there and pretend it's a rockery?' he said. "'There, in the middle.' And he leaned over her to point. "'Go away!' cried Mary. "'I don't want boys. Go away!' For a moment Basil looked angry, and then he began to tease. He was always teasing his sisters. He danced round and round her, and made faces, and sang and laughed. "'Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and marigolds all in a row?' He sang it until the other children heard and laughed too, and the crosser Mary got the more they sang, Mistress Mary, quite contrary, and after that, as long as she stayed with them, they called her Mistress Mary, quite contrary, when they spoke of her to each other, and often when they spoke to her. "'You are going to be sent home,' Basil said to her, "'at the end of the week, and we're glad of it.' "'I am glad of it too,' answered Mary. "'Where is home?' "'She doesn't know where home is.' said Basil, with seven-year-old scorn. It's England, of course. Our grandmamma lives there, and our sister Mabel was sent to her last year. You are not going to your grandmamma. You have none. You're going to your uncle. His name is Mr. Archibald Craven. I don't know anything about him, snapped Mary. I know you don't, Basil answered. You don't know anything. Girls never do. I heard father and mother talking about him. He lives in a great big desolate old house in the country, and no one goes near him. He's so cross he won't let them, and they wouldn't come if he would let them. He's a hunchback, and is horrid. I don't believe you, said Mary, and she turned her back and stuck her fingers in her ears, because she would not listen any more. But she thought over it a great deal afterward, and when Mrs. Crawford told her that night that she was going to sail away to England in a few days and go to her uncle, Mr. Archibald Craven, who lived at Misselthwaite Manor, she looked so stony and stubbornly uninterested that they did not know what to think about her. They tried to be kind to her, but she only turned her face away when Mrs. Crawford attempted to kiss her, and held herself stiffly when Mr. Crawford patted her shoulder. She is such a plain child. Mrs. Crawford said pityingly afterward, and her mother was such a pretty creature. She had a very pretty manner, too, and Mary has the most unattractive ways I ever saw in a child. The children call her Mistress Mary quite contrary, and though it's naughty of them, one can't help understanding it. Perhaps if her mother had carried her pretty face and her pretty manners oftener into the nursery, Mary might have learned some pretty ways, too. It's very sad. Now the poor beautiful thing is gone to remember that many people never even knew that she had a child at all. I believe she scarcely ever looked at her, sighed Mrs. Crawford. When her ayah was dead, there was no one to give a thought to the little thing. Think of the servants running away and leaving her all alone in that deserted bungalow. Colonel McGrew said he nearly jumped out of his skin when he opened the door and found her standing by herself in the middle of the room. 
Mary made the long voyage to England under the care of an officer's wife, who was taking her children to leave them in a boarding school. She was very much absorbed in her own little boy and girl, and was rather glad to hand the child over to the woman Mr. Archibald Craven sent to meet her in London. The woman was his housekeeper at Misselthwaite Manor, and her name was Mrs. Medlock. She was a stout woman with very red cheeks and sharp black eyes. She wore a very purple dress, a black silk mantle with jet fringe on it, and a black bonnet with purple velvet flowers, which stuck up and trembled when she moved her head. Mary did not like her at all, but as she very seldom liked people there was nothing remarkable in that. Besides which it was very evident Mrs. Medlock did not think much of her. "'My word! She's a plain little piece of goods,' she said. "'And we had heard her mother was a beauty. She hasn't handed much of it down, has she, ma'am?' "'Perhaps she will improve as she grows older,' the officer's wife said good-naturedly. "'If she were not so sallow and her hair a nicer expression, her features are rather good. Children alter so much.' "'She'll have to alter a good deal,' answered Mrs. Medlock. "'And there's nothing likely to improve children at Mithelswaite, if you ask me.' They thought Mary was not listening, because she was standing a little apart from them at the window of the private hotel they had gone to. She was watching the passing buses and cabs and people, but she heard quite well, and was made very curious about her uncle and the place he lived in. What sort of place was it? And what would he be like? What was a hunchback? She'd never seen one. Perhaps there were none in India. Since she had been living in other people's houses, and had no ire, she had begun to feel lonely, and to think queer thoughts which were new to her. She had begun to wonder why she had never seemed to belong to anyone, even when her father and mother had been alive. Other children seemed to belong to their fathers and mothers, but she had never seemed to really be anyone's little girl. She had had servants and food and clothes, but no one had taken any notice of her. She did not know that this was because she was a disagreeable child, but then, of course, she did not know she was disagreeable. She often thought that other people were, but she did not know that she was so herself. She thought Mrs. Medlock the most disagreeable person she had ever seen, with her common, highly-coloured face and her common, fine bonnet. When the next day they set out on their journey to Yorkshire, she walked through the station to the railway carriage with her head up, trying to keep as far away from her as she could, because she did not want to seem to belong to her. It would have made her angry to think people imagined she was her little girl. But Mrs. Medlock was not in the least disturbed by her and her thoughts. She was the kind of woman who would stand no nonsense from young ones. At least that is what she would have said if she had been asked. She had not wanted to go to London just when her sister Maria's daughter was going to be married, but she had a comfortable, well-paid place as housekeeper at Mithelswaite Manor, and the only way in which she could keep it was to do at once what Mr. Archibald Craven told her to do. She never dared even to ask a question. "'Captain Lennox and his wife died of the cholera,' Mr. Craven had said in his short, cold way. Captain Lennox was my wife's brother, and I am their daughter's guardian. The child is to be brought here. You must go to London and bring her yourself. So she packed her small trunk and made the journey. Mary sat in her corner of the railway carriage and looked plain and fretful. She had nothing to read or to look at, and she folded her thin little black gloved hands in her lap. Her black dress made her look yellower than ever, and her limp light hair straggled from under her black crepe hat. A more mild-looking young one I never saw in my life, Mrs. Medlock thought. Mild is a Yorkshire word, and means spoiled and pettish. She had never seen a child who sat so still without doing anything. 
and at last she got tired of watching her and began to talk in a brisk, hard voice. "'I suppose I may as well tell you something about where you were going to,' she said. "'Do you know anything about your uncle?' "'No,' said Mary. "'Never heard your father and mother talk about him?' "'No,' said Mary, frowning. She frowned because she remembered that her father and mother had never talked to her about anything in particular. Certainly they had never told her things. <laughs> muttered Mrs. Medlock, staring at her queer, unresponsive little face. She did not say any more for a few moments, and then she began again. But I suppose you might as well be told something, to prepare you. You are going to a queer place. Mary said nothing at all, and Mrs. Medlock looked rather discomfited by her apparent indifference, but after taking a breath she went on. Not but that it's a grand big place in a gloomy way, and Mr. Craven's proud of it in his way, and that's gloomy enough, too. The house is six hundred years old, and it's on the edge of the manor, and there's near a hundred rooms in it, though most of them is shut up and locked, and there's pictures and fine old furniture and things that's been there for ages, and there's a big park round it, and gardens and trees with branches trailing to the ground, some of them. She paused and took another breath. But there's nothing else she ended suddenly. Mary had begun to listen in spite of herself. It all sounded so unlike India, and anything new rather attracted her. But she did not intend to look as if she were interested. That was one of her unhappy, disagreeable ways. So she sat still. "'Well,' said Mrs. Medlock, "'what do you think of it?' "'Nothing,' she answered. "'I know nothing about such places.' That made Mrs. Medlock laugh, a short sort of laugh. "'But you are like an old woman. Don't you care?' "'It doesn't matter,' said Mary, "'whether I care or not.' "'You are right enough there,' said Mrs. Medlock. "'It doesn't. "'What ought to be kept at Misselthwaite Manor, for I don't know, "'unless because it's the easiest way. "'He's not going to trouble himself about you, that's sure and certain. "'He never troubles himself about no one.' "'She stopped herself as if she had just remembered something in time. "'He's got a crooked back,' she said. That set him wrong. He was a sour young man, and got no good of all his money, and big place till he was married. Mary's eyes turned toward her in spite of her intention not to seem to care. She never thought of the hunchbacks being married, and she was a trifle surprised. Mrs. Medlock saw this, and as she was a talkative woman, she continued with more interest. This was one way of passing some of the time, at any rate. She was a sweet, pretty thing, and he'd have walked the world over to get her a blade of grass she wanted. Nobody thought she'd marry him, but she did, and people said she married him for his money, but she didn't. She didn't. Positively. When she died, Mary gave an involuntary little jump. Oh, did she die? she exclaimed, quite without meaning to. She just remembered a French fairy story she had once read in Riquet à la Houpe. It had been about a poor hunchback and a beautiful princess, and it made her suddenly sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven. "'Yes, she died,' Mrs. Medlock answered, "'and it made him queerer than ever. He cares about nobody. He won't see people. Most of the time he goes away, and when he is at Misselthwaite he shuts himself up in the West Wing, and won't let anyone but Pitcher see him. Pitcher's an old fellow, but he took care of him when he was a child, and he knows his ways.' It sounded like something in a book, and it did not make Mary feel cheerful. A house with a hundred rooms, nearly all shut up, and with their doors locked. A house on the edge of a moor. Whatsoever a moor was, sounded dreary. A man with a crooked back, who shut himself up also. 
She stared out of the window with her lips pinched together, and it seemed quite natural that the rain should have begun to pour down in grey slanting lines and splash and stream down the window panes. If the pretty wife had been alive, she might have made things cheerful by being something like her own mother, and by running in and out and going to parties as she had done in frocks full of lace. But she was not there any more. "'You needn't expect to see him, because ten to one you won't,' said Mrs. Medlock. "'And you mustn't expect that there will be people to talk to you. You'll have to play about and look after yourself. You'll be told what rooms you can go into and what rooms you're to keep out of. There's gardens enough, but when you're in the house don't go wandering and poking about. Mr. Craven won't have it.' "'I shall not want to go poking about,' said sour little Mary, and just as suddenly as she had begun— to be rather sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven, she began to cease to be sorry, and to think he was unpleasant enough to deserve all that had happened to him. And she turned her face toward the streaming panes of the window of the railway carriage, and gazed out of the grey rainstorm, which looked as if it would go on for ever and ever. She watched it so long and steadily, that the greyness grew heavier and heavier before her eyes, and she fell asleep. End of chapter 2 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Three of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Across the Moor. She slept a long time, and when she awakened, Mrs. Medlock had bought a lunch basket at one of the stations, and they had some chicken and cold beef and bread and butter and some hot tea. The rain seemed to be streaming down more heavily than ever, and everybody in the station wore wet and glistening waterproofs. The guard lighted the lamps in the carriage, and Mrs. Medlock cheered up very much over her tea and chicken and beef. She ate a great deal, and afterward fell asleep herself, and Mary sat and stared at her, and watched her fine bonnet slip on one side, until she herself fell asleep once more in the corner of the carriage, lulled by the splashing of the rain against the windows. It was quite dark when she awakened again. The train had stopped at a station, and Mrs. Medlock was shaking her. "'You've had a sleep,' she said. It's time to open your eyes. We're at Thwaite Station, and we've got a long drive before us. Mary stood up and tried to keep her eyes open while Mrs. Medlock collected her parcels. The little girl did not offer to help her, because in India native servants always picked up or carried things, and it seemed quite proper that other people should wait on one. The station was a small one, and nobody but themselves seemed to be getting out of the train. The station-master spoke to Mrs. Medlock in a rough, good-natured way, pronouncing his words in a queer, broad fashion, which Mary found out afterward, was Yorkshire. "'I see thou's got back,' he said, "'and thou's brought the young un with thee.' "'Aye, that's her,' answered Mrs. Medlock, speaking with a Yorkshire accent herself, and jerking her head over her shoulder toward Mary. "'How's thy missus?' "'Well enough. The carrier's waiting outside for thee.' A brougham stood on the road before the little outside platform. Mary saw that it was a smart carriage, and that it was a smart footman who helped her in. His long waterproof coat and the waterproof covering of his hat were shining and dripping with rain as everything was, the burly station-master included. When he shut the door, mounted the box with the coachman, and they drove off, the little girl found herself seated in a comfortably cushioned corner, but she was not inclined to go to sleep again. She sat and looked out of the window, curious to see something of the road over which she was being She was not at all a timid child, and she was not exactly frightened, 
but she felt that there was no knowing what might happen in a house with a hundred rooms nearly all shut up. A house standing on the edge of a moor. "'What is a moor?' she said suddenly to Mrs. Medlock. "'Look out of the window in about ten minutes and you'll see,' the woman answered. "'We've got to drive five miles across Missile Moor before we get to the manor. You won't see much because it's a dark night, but you can see something.' Mary asked no more questions, but waited in the darkness of her corner, keeping her eyes on the window. The carriage lamps cast rays of light a little distance ahead of them, and she caught glimpses of the things they passed. After they had left the station, they had driven through a tiny village, and she had seen whitewashed cottages and the lights of a public house. Then she had passed a church and a vicarage and a little shop window, or so in a cottage with toys and sweets and odd things set out for sale. Then they were on the high road, and she saw hedges and trees. After that there seemed nothing different for a long time, or at least it seemed a long time to her. At last the horses began to go more slowly, as if they were climbing uphill, and presently there seemed to be no more hedges and no more trees. She could see nothing, in fact, but a dense darkness on either side. She leaned forward and pressed her face against the window, just as the carriage gave a big jolt. "'Hey, we're on the moor now, sure enough,' said Mrs. Medlock. The carriage lamps shed a yellow light on a rough-looking road which seemed to be cut through bushes and low-growing things which ended in a great expanse of dark apparently spread out before and around them. A wind was rising and making a singular wild low-rushing sound. "'It's—it's it's not the sea, is it?' said Mary, looking round at her companion. "'No, not it,' answered Mrs. Medlock. "'Nor it isn't fields nor mountains. It's just miles and miles and miles of wild land that nothing grows on but heather and gorse and broom, and nothing lives on but wild ponies and sheep. I feel as if it might be the sea. If there were water on it, said Mary, it sounds like the sea just now. That's the wind blowing through the bushes, Mrs. Medlock said. It's a wild, dreary enough place in my mind, though there's plenty that likes it, particularly when the heather's in bloom. On and on they drove through the darkness and though the rain stopped, the wind rushed by and whistled and made strange sounds. The road went up and down, and several times the carriage passed over a little bridge beneath which water rushed very fast, with a great deal of noise. Mary felt as if the drive would never come to an end, and that the wide, bleak moor was a wide expanse of black ocean, through which she was passing on a strip of dry land. "'Don't like it,' she said to herself. "'I don't like it,' and she pinched her lips more tightly together. The horses were climbing up a hilly piece of road when she first caught sight of a light. Mrs. Medlock saw it as soon as she did, and drew a long sigh of relief. "'Eh! I'm glad to see that bit of light twinkling,' she exclaimed. "'It's the light of the lodge window. We shall get a good cup of tea after a bit, at all events.' It was after a bit, as she said, for the carriage passed through the park gates. There were still two miles of avenue to drive through, and the trees, which nearly met overhead, made it seem as if they were driving through a long, dark vault. They drove out of the vault into a clear space, and stopped before an immensely long but low-built house, which seemed to ramble round a stone court. At first Mary thought there were no lights at all in the windows, but as she got out of the carriage she saw that one room in the corner upstairs showed a dull glow. The entrance door was a huge one made of massive, curiously shaped panels of oak, studded with big iron nails, and bound with great iron bars. It opened into an enormous hall, which was so dimly lighted that the faces in the portraits on the walls, and the figures in the suits of armour, made Mary feel that she did not want to look at them. As she stood on the stone floor, she looked a very small, odd little black figure, and she felt as small and lost and odd as she looked. 
a neat, thin old man stood near the manservant who opened the door for them. "'You are to take her to her room?' he said in a husky voice. "'He doesn't want to see her. He's going to London in the morning.' "'Very well, Mr. Pitcher,' Mrs. Medlock answered. And then Mary Lennox was led up a broad staircase, and down a long corridor, and up a short flight of steps, and through another corridor, and another, until a door opened in a wall, and she found herself in a room with a fire in it, and a supper on a table. Mrs. Medlock said unceremoniously, "'Well, here you are. This room and the next are where you'll live, and you must keep to them. Don't you forget that.' It was in this way Mistress Mary arrived at Misselthwaite Manor and she had perhaps never felt quite so contrary in her life. End of chapter 3 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 4 of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Martha When she opened her eyes in the morning, it was because a young housemaid had come into her room to light the fire and was kneeling on the hearthrug, raking out the cinders noisily. Mary lay and watched her for a few moments, and then began to look about the room. She had never seen a room at all like it, and thought it curious and gloomy. The walls were covered with tapestry, and a forest scene embroidered on it. There were fantastically dressed people under the trees, and in the distance there was a glimpse of the turrets of a castle. There were hunters and horses and dogs and ladies. Mary felt as if she were in the forest with them. Out of a deep window she could see a great climbing stretch of land, which seemed to have no trees on it, and to look rather like an endless, dull, purplish sea. "'What is that?' she said, pointing out of the window. Martha, the young housemaid, who had just risen to her feet, looked and pointed also. "'That there?' she said. "'Yes, that's the moor,' with a good-natured grin. "'Does I like it?' "'No,' answered Mary. "'I hate it.' "'That's because thou'rt not used to it,' Martha said, going back to her hearth. "'Thou thinks it too big and bare now. But thou will like it.' "'Do you?' inquired Mary. "'Aye, that I do,' answered Martha, cheerfully polishing away at the grate. "'I just love it. It's none bare. It's covered with growing things that smell sweet. It's fair lovely in spring and summer.' when the gorse and broom and heather's in flower. It smells of honey, and there's such a lot of fresh air, and the sky looks so high, and, and the bees and skylarks make such a nice noise humming and singing. Eh, I wouldn't live away from the moor for anything. Mary listened to her with a grave, puzzled expression. The native servants she had been used to in India were not in the least like this. They were obsequious and servile, and did not presume to talk to their masters as if they were their equals. They made salams and called them protector of the poor, and names of that sort. Indian servants were commanded to do things, not asked. It was not the custom to say please and thank you, and Mary had always slapped her eye in the face when she was angry. She wondered a little what this girl would do if one slapped her in the face. She was a round, rosy, good-natured-looking creature, but she had a sturdy way which made Mistress Mary wonder if she might not even slap back, if the person who slapped her was only a little girl. "'You are a strange servant,' she said from her pillows rather haughtily. Martha sat up on her heels with her blacking brush in her hand and laughed, without seeming the least out of temper. "'Eh, I know that,' she said. "'If there's a grand missus of Misselthwaite, I should never have been one of the under-housemaids. I might have made let to be scullery-maid, but I'd never have been let upstairs. I'm too common, and I talk too much Yorkshire. But this is a funny house, for all it's so grand.' 
Seems like there's neither master nor mistress except Mr. Pitcher and Mrs. Medlock. Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled about anything when he's here, and he's nearly always away. Mrs. Medlock gave me the place out of kindness. She told me she could never have done it if Micklethwaite had been like other big houses. Are you going to be my servant? Mary asked, still in her imperious little Indian way. Martha began to rub her grate again. I'm Mrs. Medlock's servant, she said stoutly, and she's Mr. Craven's. But I'm to do the housemaid's work up here and wait on you a bit. But you won't need much waiting on. Who is going to dress me? demanded Mary. Martha sat up on her heels again and stared. She spoke in broad Yorkshire in her amazement. Can I dress the sen? she said. What do you mean? I don't understand your language, said Mary. Eh, uh, I forgot, Martha said. Mrs. Medlock told me I'd have to be careful or you wouldn't know what I was saying. I mean, can't you put on your own clothes? No, answered Mary quite indignantly. I never did in my life. My eye addressed me, of course. Well, said Martha, evidently not in the least aware that she was impudent, it's time they should learn. They cannot begin younger. So do the good to wait on thy sen a bit. My mother always said she couldn't see why grand people's children didn't turn out fair fools, what the nurses and being washed and dressed and took out to walk as if they was puppies. Tis different in India, said Mistress Mary disdainfully. She could scarcely stand this. But Martha was not at all crushed. Eh, I can see it was different, she answered almost sympathetically. Dare say it's because there's such a lot of blacks there instead of respectable white people. When I heard you was coming from India, I thought you was a black, too. Mary sat up in bed, furious. What? she said. What? You thought I was a native? You, you daughter of a pig! Martha stared and looked hot. Who are you calling names? she said. You needn't be so vexed. That's not the way for a young lady to talk. I'm nothing against the blacks. When you read about them in tracts, they're always very religious. You always read as a black's a man and a brother. I've never seen a black, and I was fair pleased to think I was going to see one close. When I came in to light your fire this morning, I crept up to your bed and pulled the covers back, careful to look at you. And there you was, disappointedly, no more black than me, for all you're so yellow. Mary did not even try to control her rage and humiliation. You thought I was a native. You dead. You don't know anything about natives. They're not people. They're servants who must sell them to you. You know nothing about India. You know nothing about anything. She was in such a rage and felt so helpless before the girl's simple stare, and somehow she suddenly felt so horribly lonely and far away from everything she understood and which understood her, that she threw her face downward on the pillows and burst into passionate sobbing. She sobbed so unrestrainedly that good-natured Yorkshire Martha was a little frightened and quite sorry for her. She went to the bed and bent over her. Eh, you mustn't cry like that there, she begged. You mustn't for sure. I didn't know you'd be vexed. I don't know anything about anything, just like you said. I beg your pardon, miss. Do stop crying. There was something comforting and really friendly in her queer Yorkshire speech and sturdy way which had a good effect on Mary. She gradually ceased crying and became quiet. Martha looked relieved. It's time for thee to get up now she said. Mrs. Medlock said I was to carry the breakfast and tea and dinner into the room next to this. It's been made into a nursery for thee. I'll help thee on with thy clothes if thou'll get out of bed. If the buttons are at the back, thou cannot button them up thyself. 
When Mary at last decided to get up, the clothes Martha took from the wardrobe were not the ones she had worn when she arrived the night before with Mrs. Medlock. "'Those are not mine,' she said. "'Mine are black.' She looked at the thick white wool coat and dress over, and added with cool approval, "'Those are nicer than mine.' "'These are the ones that I must put on,' Martha answered. "'Mr. Craven ordered Mrs. Medlock to get him in London.' He said, I won't have a child dressed in black wandering about like a lost soul. He said, to make the place sadder than it is. Put colour on her. Mother said she knew what he meant. Mother always knows what a body means. She doesn't hold back with herself. I hate black things, said Mary. The dressing process was one which taught them both something. Martha had buttoned up her little sisters and brothers, but she had never seen a child who stood still and waited for another person to do things for her, as if she had neither hands nor feet of her own. "'Why doesn't they put on their own shoes?' she said, when Mary quietly held out her foot. "'My ayah did it,' answered Mary, staring. "'It was the custom.' She said that very often. It was the custom. The native servants were always saying it. If one told them to do a thing their ancestors had not done for a thousand years, they gazed at one mildly and said, "'It is not the custom,' and one knew that was the end of the matter. It had not been the custom that Mistress Mary should do anything but stand and allow herself to be dressed like a doll, but before she was ready for breakfast she began to suspect that her life at Misselthwaite Manor would end by teaching her a number of things quite new to her, things such as putting on her own shoes and stockings and picking up things she let fall. If Martha had been a well-trained, fine young lady's maid, she would have been more subservient and respectful, and would have known that it was her business to brush hair and button boots, and pick things up and lay them away. She was, however, an untrained Yorkshire rustic, who had been brought up in a moorland cottage, with a swarm of little brothers and sisters, who had never dreamed of doing anything but waiting on themselves, and on the younger ones, who were either babies in arms, or just learning to totter about and tumble over things. If Mary Lennox had been a child who was ready to be amused, she would perhaps have laughed at Martha's readiness to talk. But Mary only listened to her coldly, and wondered at her freedom of manner. At first she was not at all interested, but gradually, as the girl rattled on in her good-tempered, homely way, Mary began to notice what she was saying. "'There, you shall see em all,' she said. "'There's twelve of us, and my father only gets sixteen shilling a week. I can tell you my mother's put to it to get porridge for em all. They tumble about on the moor, and play there all day, and Mother says the air the moor fattens em. She says she believes that they eat the grass, same as the wild ponies do. Our Dickon is twelve years old, and he's got a young pony. He calls his own. Where did he get it? asked Mary. He found it on the moor with its mother when it was a little one, and he began to make friends with it, and give it bits of bread, and pluck young grass for it and it got to like him, so it follows him about, and it lets him get on its back. Dickens a kind lad, and animals like him. Mary had never possessed an animal pet of her own, but always thought she should like one. So she began to feel a slight interest in Dickon, and as she had never before been interested in anyone but herself, it was a dawning of a healthy sentiment. When she went into the room which had been made into a nursery for her, she found that it was rather like the one she had slept in. It was not a child's room, to a grown-up person's room, with gloomy old pictures on the walls and heavy old oak chairs. A table in the centre was set with a good substantial breakfast, but she had always had a very small appetite, and she looked with something more than indifference at the first plate Martha set before her. "'I don't want it,' she said. "'There doesn't want the porridge,' Martha exclaimed incredulously. "'No.' 
Thou doesn't know how good it is. Put a bit of treacle on it or a bit of sugar. I don't want it, repeated Mary. Eh, said Martha. I can't abide to see good victuals go to waste. If our children was at this table, they'd clean it bare in five minutes. Why? said Mary coldly. Why? echoed Martha. Because they scarce ever have their stomachs full in their lives. They're as hungry as young hawks and foxes. I don't know what it is to be hungry, said Mary with the indifference of ignorance. Martha looked indignant. Well, it'd do the good to try it. I can see that plain enough, she said outspokenly. I've no patience with folks as sits and just stares at good bread and meat. My word, don't I wish Dickon and Phil and Jane and the rest of them had what's here under their binafores. Why don't you take it to them, then? suggested Mary. It's not mine, answered Martha stoutly. And this isn't my day out. I get my day out once a month, same as the rest. Then I go home and clean up for mother and give her a day's rest. Mary drank some tea and ate a little toast and some marmalade. You wrap up Wharton and run out and play you, said Martha. It'll do you good and give you some stomach for your meat. Martha went to the window. There were gardens and paths and big trees, but everything looked dull and wintry. Out? Why should I go out on a day like this? Well, if they doesn't go out, they'll have to stay in. And what has they got to do? Mary glanced about her. There was nothing to do. When Mrs. Medlock had prepared the nursery, she had not thought of amusement. Perhaps it would be better to go and see what the gardens were like. Who will go with me? she inquired. Martha stared. You'll go by yourself, she answered. You'll have to learn to play like other children does when they haven't got sisters and brothers. Our Dickon goes off on the moor by himself and plays for hours. That's how we made friends with the pony. He's got sheep on the moor that knows him, and birds as comes and eats out of his hand. However, little there is to eat, as always saves a bit of bread to coax his pets. It was really this mention of Dickon which made Mary decide to go out, though she was not aware of it. There would be birds outside, though there would not be ponies or sheep. They would be different from the birds in India, and it might amuse her to look at them. Martha found her coat and hat for her, and a pair of stout little boots, and she showed her way downstairs. "'If the girls round that way, they'll come to the gardens,' she said, pointing to a gate in the wall of shrubbery. "'There's lots of flowers in summer-time, but there's nothing blooming now.' She seemed to hesitate a second before she added, "'One of the gardens is locked up. No one has been in there for ten years.' "'Why?' asked Mary, in spite of herself. Here was another locked door added to the hundreds in the strange house. Mr. Craven had it shut when his wife died so sudden. He won't let no one go inside. It was her garden. He locked the door and dug a hole and buried the key. There's Mrs. Medlock's bell ringing. I must run. After she had gone, Mary turned down the walk which led to the door in the shrubbery. She could not help thinking about the garden which no one had been in for ten years. She wondered what it would look like, and whether there were any flowers still alive in it. When she had passed through the shrubbery gate, she found herself in great gardens, with wide lawns and winding walks with clipped borders. There were trees and flower-beds and evergreens clipped into strange shapes, and a large pool with an old grey fountain in its midst. But the flower-beds were bare and wintry, and the fountain was not playing. This was not the garden which was shut up. How could a garden be shut up? You could always walk into a garden. She was just thinking this when she saw that, at the end of the path she was following, there seemed to be a long wall with ivy growing over it. She was not familiar enough with England to know that she was coming upon the kitchen gardens where the vegetables and fruit were growing. 
She went toward the wall and found that there was a green door in the ivy and that it stood open. This was not the closed garden, evidently, and she could go into it. She went through the door and found that it was a garden with walls all around it, and that it was only one of several walled gardens which seemed to open into one another. She saw another open green door, revealing bushes and pathways between beds containing winter vegetables. Fruit trees were trained flat against the wall, and over some of the beds there were glass frames. The place was bare and ugly enough, Mary thought, as she stood and stared about her. It might be nicer in summer when things were green, but there was nothing pretty about it now. Presently an old man with a spade over his shoulder walked through the door leading from the second garden. He looked startled when he saw Mary, and then touched his cap. He had a surly old face, and did not seem at all pleased to see her. But then she was displeased with his garden, and wore her quite contrary expression, and certainly did not seem at all pleased to see him. "'What is this place?' she asked. "'One of the kitchen gardens,' he answered. "'What is that?' said Mary, pointing through the other green door. "'Another of them.' "'Shortly. "'There's another on t'other side of the wall, and there's the orchard on the other side of that.' "'Can I go in them?' asked Mary. "'If they likes.' but there's naught to see. Mary made no response. She went down the path and through the second green door. There she found more walls and winter vegetables and glass frames, but in the second wall there was another green door, and it was not open. Perhaps it led into the garden, which no one had seen for ten years. As she was not at all a timid child, and always did what she wanted to do, Mary went to the green door and turned the handle. She hoped that the door would not open, because she wanted to be sure she had found the mysterious garden but it did open quite easily, and she walked through it and found herself in an orchard. There were walls all around it, and trees trained against them, and there were bare fruit trees growing in the winter brown grass, but there was no green door to be seen anywhere. Mary looked for it, and yet when she had entered the upper end of the garden, she noticed that the wall did not seem to end with the orchard, but to extend beyond it, as if it enclosed a place on the other side. She could see the tops of trees above the wall, and when she stood still she saw a bird with a bright red breast sitting on the topmost branch of one of them, and suddenly he burst into his winter song, almost as if he had caught sight of her and was calling to her. She stopped and listened to him, and somehow his cheerful, friendly little whistle gave her a pleased feeling. Even a disagreeable little girl may be lonely, and the big closed house and big bare moor and big bare gardens had made this one feel as though there was nothing left in the world but herself. If she had been an affectionate child, who had been used to being loved, she would have broken her heart. But even though she was Mistress Mary quite contrary, she was desolate, and the bright-breasted little bird brought a look into her sour little face which was almost a smile. She listened to him until he flew away. He was not like an Indian bird, and she liked him, and wondered if she should ever see him again. Perhaps he lived in a mysterious garden and knew all about it. Perhaps it was because she had nothing whatever to do that she thought so much of the deserted garden. She was curious about it, and wanted to see what it was like. Why had Mr. Archibald Craven buried the key? If he liked his wife so much, why did he hate her garden? She wondered if she should ever see him, but she knew that if she did, she should not like him, and he would not like her, and that she would only stand and stare at him, and say nothing, though she should be wanting dreadfully to ask him why he had done such a queer thing. People never like me. "'And I never liked people,' she thought. "'And I can never talk as the Crawford children could. "'They were always talking and laughing and making noises.' "'She thought of the robin and of the way he seemed to sing his song at her, 
and as she remembered the treetop he perched on, she stopped rather suddenly on the path. "'I believe that tree was in the secret garden. I feel sure it was,' she said. "'There was a wall round the place, and there was no door.' She walked back into the first kitchen garden she had entered, and found the old man digging there. She went and stood beside him and watched him a few moments in her cold little way. He took no notice of her, and so at last she spoke to him. "'I've been into the other gardens,' she said. "'There was nothing to prevent thee,' he answered crustily. "'I went into the orchard.' "'There was no dog at the door to bite thee,' he answered. "'There was no door there into the other garden,' said Mary. "'What garden?' he said in a rough voice, stopping his digging for a moment. "'The one on the other side of the wall,' answered Mistress Mary. "'There were trees there. I saw the tops of them. A bird with a red breast was sitting on one of them, and he sang.' To her surprise, the surly old weathered-beaten face actually changed its expression. A slow smile spread over it, and the gardener looked quite different made her think that it was curious how much nicer a person looked when he smiled. She had not thought of it before. He turned about to the orchard side of his garden and began to whistle, a low, soft whistle. She could not understand how such a surly man could make such a coaxing sound. Almost the next moment a wonderful thing happened. She heard a soft little rushing flight through the air, and it was the bird with the red breast flying to them and he actually alighted on the big clod of earth quite near to the gardener's foot. "'Here he is,' chuckled the old man, and then he spoke to the bird as if he were speaking to a child. "'Where's the bin, you cheeky little beggar?' he said. "'I'm not seeing thee before to-day. Has he begun the court in this early in the season?' "'That to The bird put his tiny head on one side and looked up at him with a soft bright eye, which was like a black dewdrop. He seemed quite familiar and not the least afraid. He hopped about and pecked the earth briskly, looking for seeds and insects. It actually gave Mary a queer feeling in her heart, because he was so pretty and cheerful and seemed so like a person. He had a tiny plump body and a delicate beak and slender delicate legs. "'Will you always come when you call him?' she asked almost in a whisper. "'Aye, that he will. I've knowed him ever since he was a fledgling. He came out of the nest in the other garden.' When first he flew over the wall, it was too weak to fly back for a few days, and we got friendly. When he went over the wall again, the rest of the brood was gone, and he was lonely, and he came back to me. "'What kind of bird is he?' Mary asked. "'Doesn't thou know? He's a robin restbred, and they're the friendliest, curious birds alive. They're almost the friendliest dogs, if you know how to get on with them. Watch him pecking about there, and looking around at us now and again. He knows we're talking about him. It was the queerest thing in the world to see the old fellow. He looked at the plump little scarlet waistcoated bird as if he were both proud and fond of him. He's a conceited one, he chuckled. He likes to hear folk talk about him. And curious, bless me, there never was like for curiosity in meddling. He's always coming to see what I'm planting. He knows all the things Mr. Craven never troubles himself to find out. He's the head gardener he is. The robin hopped about, busily pecking the soil, and now and then stopped and looked at them a little. Mary thought his black dewdrop eyes gazed at her with great curiosity. It really seemed as if he were finding out all about her. The queer feeling in her heart increased. "'Where did the rest of the brood fly to?' she asked. "'There's no knowing. The old ones turn em out of their nest, make em fly away, and they're scattered before you know it. This one was a knowing one, and he knew he was lonely.' Mistress Mary went a step nearer to the robin and looked at him very hard. 
I'm lonely, she said. She had not known before that this was one of the things which made her feel sour and cross. She seemed to find it out when the robin looked at her, and she looked at the robin. The old gardener pushed his cap back on his bald head and stared at her a minute. "'Are that the little wrench from India?' he asked. Mary nodded. "'Then no wonder that lonely.' "'That will be lonelier before there's done,' he said. He began to dig again, driving his spade deep into the rich black garden soil, while the robin hopped about very busily employed. "'What's your name?' Mary inquired. He stood up to answer her. "'Ben Weatherstaff,' he answered. And then he added with a surly chuckle, "'I'm lonely myself. Except when he's with me.' and he jerked his thumb toward the robin. "'It's the only friend I've got.' "'I have no friends at all,' said Mary. "'I never had. My ayah didn't like me, and I never played with anyone. It's a Yorkshire habit to say what you think with blunt frankness, and old Ben Weatherstaff was a Yorkshire moor man.' "'That and me are a good bit alike,' he said. "'We was wove out of the same cloth. We're neither of us good-looking, and we're both of us as sour as we look.' We've got the same nasty tempers, both of us, I'll warrant. This was plain speaking, and Mary Lennox had never heard the truth about herself in her life. Native servants always salamed and submitted to you, whatever you did. She had never thought about her looks, but she wondered if she was as unattractive as Ben Weatherstaff, and she also wondered if she was as sour as he has looked before the robin came. She actually began to wonder also if she was nasty tempered. She felt uncomfortable. Suddenly a clear rippling little sound broke out near her, and she turned round. She was standing a few feet from a young apple tree, and the robin had flown on to one of its branches and had burst out into a scrap of a song. Ben Weatherstaff laughed outright. "'What did he do that for?' asked Mary. "'It's made up his mind to make friends with thee,' replied Ben. "'Dang me if he hasn't took a fancy to thee.' "'To me?' said Mary, and she moved toward the little tree softly and looked up. "'Do you like to make friends with me?' she said to the robin, just as if she were speaking to a person. "'Would you?' And she did not say it either in her hard little voice, or in her imperious Indian voice, but in a tone so soft and eager and coaxing that Ben Weatherstaff was as surprised as she had been when she heard him whistle. "'Why?' he cried out. "'That said that as nice a human as if there was a real child instead of a sharp old woman. That said it almost like Dickon talks to his wild things on the moor. "'Do you know Dickon?' Mary asked, turning round rather in a hurry. "'Everybody knows him. Dickens wandering about everywhere. The very blackberries and heather bells knows him. I warrant the foxes shows him where their cubs lie, and the skylarks don't hide their nests from him.' Mary would have liked to ask some more questions. She was almost as curious about Dickon as she was about the deserted garden. But just that moment the robin, who had ended his song, gave a little shake of his wings and spread them and flew away. He had made his visit, and had other things to do. "'He's flown over the wall!' Mary cried out, watching him. "'He's flown into the orchard! He's flown across the other wall! Into the garden where there is no door!' "'He lives there,' said old Ben. "'He came out of the egg there. If his caught in, he's making up some young madam of a robin that lives among the rose-trees there.' "'Rose-trees?' said Mary. "'Are there rose-trees?' Ben Weatherstaff took up his spade again and began to dig. "'There was ten years ago,' he mumbled. "'I should like to see them,' said Mary. "'Where is the green door? There must be a door somewhere.' Ben drove his spade deep, and looked as uncompanionable as he had looked when she first saw him. "'There was ten years ago, but there isn't now,' he said. "'No door?' cried Mary. "'There must be.' 
none as any one can find and none as any one's business don't you be a meddlesome wench and poke your nose where it's no cause to go here i must go on with my work get you gone and plague you i've no more time and he actually stopped digging threw his spade over his shoulder and walked off without even glancing at her or saying good-bye End of chapter 4 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 5 of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Cry in the Corridor At first each day which passed by for Mary Lennox was exactly like the others. Every morning she awoke in her tapestried room and found Martha kneeling upon the hearth building her fire. Every morning she ate her breakfast in the nursery, which had nothing amusing in it, and after each breakfast she gazed out of the window across a huge moor which seemed to spread out on all sides and climb up to the sky. And after she had stared for a while she realized that if she did not go out she would have to stay in and do nothing, and so she went out. She did not know that this was the best thing she could have done and she did not know that, when she began to walk quickly or even run along the paths and down the avenue, she was stirring her slow blood and making herself stronger by fighting with the wind which swept down from the moor. She ran only to make herself warm, and she hated the wind which rushed at her face and roared and held her back as if it were some giant she could not see. But the big breaths of rough fresh air blown over the heather filled her lungs with something which was good for her, whole thin body, and whipped some red colour into her cheeks, and brightened her dull eyes when she did not know anything about it. But after a few days, spent almost entirely out of doors, she wakened one morning, knowing what it was to be hungry, and when she sat down to her breakfast she did not glance disdainfully at her porridge and push it away, but she took up her spoon and began to eat it, and went on eating it until her bowl was empty. "'This got on well enough with that this morning, didn't there?' said Martha. "'Tastes nice today,' said Mary, feeling a little surprised for herself. "'It's the air the more that's given thee stomach for the victuals,' answered Martha. "'It's lucky for thee that's got victuals as well as appetite.' There's been twelve in our college as had the stomach and nothing to put in it. You go on playing you outdoors every day, and you'll get some flesh on your bones, and you won't be so yellow. I don't play, said Mary. I have nothing to play with. Nothing to play with, exclaimed Martha. Our children plays with sticks and stones. They just runs about and shouts and looks at things. Mary did not shout, but she looked at things. There was nothing else to do. She walked round and round the gardens and wandered about the paths in the park. Sometimes she looked for Ben Weatherstuff, but, though several times she saw him at work, he was too busy to look at her, or was too surly. Once, when she was walking toward him, he picked up his spade and turned away as if he did it on purpose. One place she went to oftener than any other. It was the long walk outside the gardens, with the walls round them. There were bare flower-beds on either side of it, and against the walls ivy grew thickly. There was one part of the wall where the creeping dark green leaves were more bushy than elsewhere. It seemed as if for a long time that part had been neglected. The rest of it had been clipped and made to look neat, but at this lower end of the walk it had not been trimmed at all. A few days after she had talked to Ben Weatherstaff. Mary stopped to notice this, and wondered why it was so. 
She had just paused and was looking up at a long spray of ivy swinging in the wind when she saw a gleam of scarlet and heard a brilliant chirp, and there, on the top of the wall, forward perched Ben Weatherstaff's robin redbreast, tilting forward to look at her with his small head on one side. Oh! she cried out. Is it you? Is it you? And it did not seem at all queer to her that she spoke to him as if she were sure that he would understand and answer her. He did not answer. He twittered and chirped and hopped along the wall as if he were telling her all sorts of things. It seemed to Mistress Mary as if she understood him too, though he was not speaking in words. It was as if he had said, "'Good morning. Isn't the wind nice? Isn't the sun nice? Isn't everything nice? Let us both chirp and hop and twitter. Come on, come on!' Mary began to laugh, and as he hopped and took little flights along the wall she ran after him. Poor little thin, sallow, ugly Mary! She actually looked almost pretty for a moment. "'I like you! I like you!' she cried out, pattering down the walk, and she chirped and tried to whistle, which last she did not know how to do in the least. But the robin seemed to be quite satisfied and chirped and whistled back at her. At last he spread his wings and made a darting flight to the top of a tree, where he perched and sang loudly. That reminded Mary of the first time she had seen him. He had been swinging on a treetop then, and she had been standing in the orchard. Now she was on the other side of the orchard, and standing in the path outside a wall, much lower down, and there was the same tree inside. "'It's a garden no one can go into,' she said to herself. "'It's a garden without a door. He lives in there. How I wish I could see what it is like!' She ran up the walk to the green door she had entered the first morning. Then she ran down the path through the other door, and then into the orchard, and when she stood and looked up, there was the tree on the other side of the wall, and there was the robin just finishing his song and beginning to preen his feathers with his beak. "'It is the garden,' she said. "'I'm sure it is.' She walked round and looked closely at the side of the orchard wall, but she only found what she had found before, that there was no door in it. Then she ran through the kitchen gardens again, and out into the walk outside the long ivy-covered wall, and she walked to the end of it and looked at it, but there was no door, and then she walked to the other end, looking again, but there was no door. "'It's very queer,' she said. "'Ben Weatherstaff said there was no door, and there is no door. But there must have been one ten years ago, because Mr. Craven buried the key.' This gave her so much to think about that she began to be quite interested and feel that she was not sorry that she had come to Misselthwaite Manor. In India she had always felt hot and too languid to care much about anything. The fact was that the fresh wind from the moor had begun to blow the cobwebs out of her young brain and to waken her up a little. She stayed out of the doors nearly all day, and when she sat down to her supper at night she felt hungry and drowsy and comfortable. She did not feel cross when Martha chatted away. She felt as if she rather liked to hear her, and at last she thought she would ask her a question. She asked if after she had finished her supper and had sat down on the hearthrug before fire. "'Why did Mr. Craven hate the garden?' she said. She had made Martha stay with her, and Martha had not objected at all. She was very young, and used to a crowded cottage full of brothers and sisters, and she found it dull in the great servants' hall downstairs, where the footman and other housemaids made fun of her Yorkshire speech, and looked upon her as a common little thing, and sat and whispered among themselves. Martha liked to talk, and the strange child who had lived in India, and been waited upon by blacks, was novelty enough to attract her. She sat down on the hearth herself, without waiting to be asked. 
"'Art thou thinking about that garden yet?' she said. "'I knew there would. That was just the way with me when I first heard about it.' "'Why did he hate it?' Mary persisted. Martha tucked her feet under her and made herself quite comfortable. "'Listen to the wind weathering round the house,' she said. "'You could bear stand up on the moor if you was out on it to-night.' Mary did not know what Wuthering meant until she listened, and then she understood. It meant that hollow shuddering sort of roar which rushed round the house as if the giant no one could see were buffeting it and beating at the walls and windows to try to break in. But one knew he could not get in, and somehow it made one feel very safe and warm inside a room with a red coal fire. "'But why did he hate it so?' she asked after she had listened. She intended to know if Martha did. Then Martha gave up her store of knowledge. Mind, she said, Mrs. Medlock said it's not to be talked about. There's a lot of things in this place that's not to be talked over. That's Mr. Craven's orders. His troubles are none servant's business, he says. But for the garden he wouldn't be like he is. It was Mrs. Craven's garden that she made when they first married, and she just loved it, and they used to tend the flowers themselves, and none of the gardeners was ever let to go in. Him and her used to go in and shut the door and stay there for hours and hours, reading and talking. And she was just a bit of a girl, and there was an old tree with a branch bent like a seat on it, and she made roses grow over it, and she used to sit there. But one day, when she was sitting there, the branch broke, and she fell on the ground and was hurt so bad that the next day she died. The doctors thought he'd go out of his mind and die too. That's why he hates it. No one's never gone in since, and he won't let anyone talk about it. Mary did not ask any more questions. She looked at the red fire and listened to the wind wuthering. It seemed to be wuthering louder than ever. At that moment a very good thing was happening to her. Four good things had happened to her, in fact, since she came to Mithelswaite Manor. She had felt as if she had understood a robin, and that he had understood her. She had run in the wind until her blood had grown warm. She had been healthily hungry for the first time in her life, and she had found out what it was to be sorry for someone. But as she was listening to the wind, she began to listen to something else. She did not know what it was, because at first she could scarcely distinguish it from the wind itself. It was a curious sound. It seemed almost as if a child were crying somewhere. Sometimes the wind sounded rather like a child crying, but presently Mistress Mary felt sure this sound was inside the house, not outside. It was far away, but it was inside. She turned round and looked at Martha. "'Do you hear anyone crying?' she said. Martha suddenly looked confused. No, she answered. It's the wind. Sometimes it sounds like as someone was lost on the moor and wailing. It's got all sorts of sounds. But listen, said Mary. It's in the house, down one of those long corridors. And at that very moment a door must have been opened somewhere downstairs, for a great rushing draught blew along the passage, and the door of the room they sat in was blown open with a crash and as they both jumped to their feet the light was blown out and the crying sound was swept down the far corridor so that it was to be heard more plainly than ever there said mary i told you so tis someone crying and it isn't a grown-up person martha ran and shut the door and turned the key but before she did it they both heard the sound of a door in some far passage shutting with a bang and then everything was quiet for even the wind ceased wuthering for a few moments it was the wind said Martha stubbornly. And if it wasn't, it was little Betty Butterworth, the scullery maid. She had the toothache all day. But something troubled and awkward in her manner made Mistress Mary stare very hard at her. 
she did not believe she was speaking the truth. End of chapter 5 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 6 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 There was someone crying. There was. The next day the rain poured down in torrents again, and when Mary looked out of her window, the moor was almost hidden by grey mist and cloud. There could be no going out today. "'What do you do in your cottage when it rains like this?' she asked Martha. "'Try to keep from under each other's feet, mostly.' Martha answered. Eh, there does seem a lot of us then. Mother's a good-tempered woman, but she gets fair moithered. The biggest ones go out in the cowshed and plays there. Dickon, he doesn't mind the wet. He goes out just the same as if the sun were shining. He says he sees things on rainy days as doesn't show when it's fair weather. He once found a little fox cub half drowned in its hole, and he brought it home in the bosom of his shirt to keep it warm. Its mother had been killed nearby, and the hole was swum out, and the rest of the litter was dead. He's got it at home now. He found a half-drowned young crow another time, and he brought it home too, and tamed it. It's named Soot because it's so black, and it hops and flies about with him everywhere. The time had come when Mary had forgotten to resent Martha's familiar talk. She had even begun to find it interesting, and to be sorry when she stopped or went away. The stories she had been told by her ayah when she lived in India had been quite unlike those Martha had to tell about the moorland cottage which held fourteen people who lived in four little rooms and never had quite enough to eat. The children seemed to tumble about and amuse themselves like a litter of rough, good-natured collie puppies. Mary was most attracted by the mother and Dickon. When Martha told stories of what mother said or did, they always sounded comfortable. "'If I had a raven or a fox-club, I could play with it,' said Mary. "'But I have nothing.' Martha looked perplexed. "'Can they knit?' she asked. "'No,' answered Mary. "'Can they sew?' "'No.' "'Can they read?' "'Yes. Then why doesn't they read something, or learn a bit of spelling? That's old enough to be learning thy book a good bit now.' "'I haven't any books,' said Mary. Those I had were left in India. That's a pity, said Martha. If Mrs. Medlock let thee go into the library, there's thousands of books there. Mary did not ask where the library was, because she was suddenly inspired by a new idea. She made up her mind to go and find it herself. She was not troubled about Mrs. Medlock. Mrs. Medlock seemed always to be in her comfortable housekeeper's sitting-room downstairs. In this queer place one scarcely ever saw any one at all. In fact, there was no one to be seen but the servants, and when their master was away they lived in a luxurious life below stairs, where there was a huge kitchen hung about with shining brass and pewter, and a large servants' hall, where there were four or five abundant meals eaten every day, and where a great deal of lively romping went on when Mrs. Medlock was out of the way. Mary's meals were served regularly, and Martha waited on her, but no one troubled themselves about her in the least. Mrs. Medlock came and looked at her every day or two, but no one inquired what she did or told her what to do. She supposed that this was the English way of treating children. In India she had always been attended by her ayah, who had followed her about and waited on her hand and foot. She had often been tired of her company. Now she was followed by nobody, and was learning to dress herself because Martha looked as though she thought she was silly and stupid when she wanted to have things handed to her and put on. 
"'Hasn't they got good sense?' she said once, when Mary had stood waiting for her to put on her gloves for her. "'Our Susan Ann is twice as sharp as thee, and she is only four years old. Sometimes they looks very soft in the head.' Mary had worn her contrary scowl for an hour after that, but it made her think several entirely new things. She stood at the window for about ten minutes this morning after Martha had swept up the hearth for the last time and gone downstairs. She was thinking over the new idea which had come to her when she heard of the library. She did not care very much about the library itself, because she had read very few books. But to hear of it brought back to her mind the hundred rooms with closed doors. She wondered if they were all really locked, and what she would find if she could get into any of them. Were there a hundred, really? Why shouldn't she go and see how many doors she could count? It would be something to do on this morning when she could not go out. She had never been taught to ask permission to do things, and she knew nothing at all about authority, so she would not have thought it necessary to ask Mrs. Medlock if she might walk about the house, even if she had seen her. She opened the door of the room and went into the corridor, and then she began her wanderings. It was a long corridor, and it branched into the other corridors, and it led her up short flights of steps, which mounted to others again. There were doors and doors, and there were pictures on the walls. Sometimes there were pictures of dark, curious landscapes, but often they say were portraits of men and women in queer grand costumes made of satin and velvet. She found herself in one long gallery, whose walls were covered with those portraits. She had never thought there could be so many in any house. She walked slowly down this place and stared at the faces, which also seemed to stare at her. She felt as if they were wondering what a little girl from India was doing in their house. Some were pictures of children, little girls in thick satin frocks, which reached to their feet and stood out about them, and boys with puffed sleeves and lace collars and long hair, with big ruffs around their necks. She always stopped to look at the children, and wondered what their names were, and where they had gone, and why they wore such odd clothes. There was a stiff, plain little girl rather like herself. She wore a green brocade dress, and held a green parrot on her finger. Her eyes had a sharp, curious look. "'Where do you live now?' Mary said aloud to her. "'I wish you were here.' Surely no other little girl ever spent such a queer morning. It seems as if there was no one in all the huge rambling house but her own small self, wandering about upstairs and down, through narrow passages and wide ones, where it seemed to her that no one but herself had ever walked. Since so many rooms had been built, people must have lived in them, but it all seemed so empty that she could not quite believe it true. It was not until she climbed to the second floor that she thought of turning the handle of a door. All the doors were shut, as Mrs. Medlock had said they were, but at last she put her hand on the handle of one of them and turned it. She was almost frightened for a moment, and when she felt that it turned without difficulty, and that when she pushed upon the door itself it slowly and heavily opened. It was a massive door and opened into a big bedroom. There were embroidered hangings on the wall, and inlaid furniture such as she had seen in India stood about the room. A broad window with leaded panes looked out upon the moor, and over the mantel was another portrait of the stiff, plain little girl who seemed to stare at her more curiously than ever. "'Perhaps she slept here once,' said Mary. "'She stares at me so that she makes me feel queer.' After that she opened more doors and more. She saw so many rooms that she became quite tired, and began to think that there must be a hundred, though she had not counted them. In all of them there were old pictures or old tapestries with strange scenes worked on them. There were curious pieces of furniture and curious ornaments in nearly all of them. 
In one room, which looked like a slady's sitting-room, the hangings were all embroidered velvet, and in a cabinet were about a hundred little elephants made of ivory. They were of different sizes, and some had their mahouts or palanquins on their backs. Some were much bigger than the others, and some were so tiny that they seemed only babies. Mary had seen carved ivory in India, and she knew all about elephants. She opened the door of the cabinet and stood on a footstool and played with these for quite a long time. When she got tired, she set the elephants in order and shut the door of the cabinet. In all her wanderings through the long corridors and the empty rooms, she had seen nothing alive. But in this room she saw something. Just after she had closed the cabinet door, she heard a tiny rustling sound. It made her jump and look around at the sofa by the fireplace from which it seemed to come. In the corner of the sofa there was a cushion, and in the velvet which covered it there was a hole, and out of the hole peeped a tiny head with a pair of frightened eyes in it. Mary crept softly across the room to look. The bright eyes belonged to a little grey mouse, and the mouse had eaten a hole into the cushion and made a comfortable nest there. Six baby mice were cuddled up asleep near her. If there was no one else alive in the hundred rooms, there were seven mice who did not look lonely at all. "'They wouldn't be so frightened. I would take them back with me,' said Mary. She had wandered about long enough to feel too tired to wander any farther, and she turned back. Two or three times she lost her way by turning down the wrong corridor and was obliged to ramble up and down until she found the right one. But at last she reached her own floor again, though she was some distance from her own room and did not know exactly where she was. "'I believe I have taken a wrong turning again,' she said, standing still at what seemed the end of a short passage with tapestry on the wall. "'I don't know which way to go. How still everything is!' It was while she was standing here, and just after she had said this, that the stillness was broken by a sound. It was another cry, but not quite like the one she had heard last night. It was only a short one, a fretful childish whine muffled by passing through walls. "'It's nearer than it was.' said Mary, her heart beating rather faster. "'And it is crying!' She put her hand accidentally upon the tapestry near her, and then sprang back, feeling quite startled. The tapestry was a covering of a door which fell open, and showed her that there was another part of the corridor behind it, and Mrs. Medlock was coming up with her bunch of keys in her hand, and a very cross look on her face. "'What are you doing here?' she said, and she took Mary by the arm and pulled her away. "'What did I tell you?' "'I turned around the wrong corner,' explained Mary. "'I didn't know which way to go, and I heard someone crying.' She quite hated Mrs. Medlock at the moment, but she hated her more the next. "'You didn't hear anything of the sort,' said the housekeeper. "'You come along back to your own room, or I'll box your ears.' And she took her by the arm, and half pushed, half pulled her up one passage and down another, until she pushed her in at the door of her own room. "'Now!' she said. You stay where you're told to stay, or you'll find yourself locked up. The master had better get you a governor, same as he said he would. You're one that needs someone to look sharp after you. I've got enough to do. She went out of the room and slammed the door after her, and Mary went and sat on the hearthrug, pale with rage. She did not cry, but ground her teeth. There was someone crying. There was. There was, she said to herself. She'd heard it twice now, and sometimes she would find out. She had found out a great deal this morning. She felt as if she had been on a long journey, and at any rate she had had something to amuse her all the time, and she had played with the ivory elephants, and had seen the grey mouse and its babies in their nest in the velvet cushion. End of chapter 6
Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Seven of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Key to the Garden. Two days after this, when Mary opened her eyes, she sat upright in bed immediately and called to Martha. Look at the moor! Look at the moor! The rainstorm had ended, and the grey mist and clouds had been swept away in the night by the wind. The wind itself had ceased, and a brilliant deep blue sky arched high over the moorland. Never, never had Mary dreamed of a sky so blue. In India skies were hot and blazing. This was of a deep cool blue which almost seemed to sparkle like the waters of some lovely bottomless lake, and here and there, high, high in the arched blueness, floated small clouds of snow-white fleece. The far-reaching world of the moor looked itself softly blue instead of gloomy purple-black or awful dreary grey. "'Aye,' said Martha, with a cheerful grin, "'the storm's over for a bit. It does like this at this time of year. It goes off in a night like it was pretending it had never been here and never meant to come again.' "'That's because the springtime's on its way. It's a long way off yet, but it's coming.' "'I thought perhaps it always rained or looked dark in England,' Mary said. "'Eh, no,' said Martha, sitting up on her heels among her black lead brushes. "'Now to the sort.' "'What does that mean?' asked Mary seriously. In India the natives spoke different dialects which only a few people understood, so she was not surprised when Martha used words she did not know. Martha laughed as she had done the first morning. "'There now,' she said. "'I've talked broad Yorkshire again like Mrs. Medlock said I mustn't. "'Now to the sort means nothing of the sort. "'Slowly and carefully. "'But it takes so long to say it. "'Yorkshire's the sunniest place on earth when it is sunny. "'I told thee they'd like the moor after a bit. "'Just you wait till you see the gold-coloured gorse blossoms "'and the blossoms of the broom and the heather flowering.' all purple boughs and hundreds of butterflies fluttering and bees humming and skylarks soaring up and singing. You'll want to get out on it at sunrise and live out on it all day like Dickon does. Could I ever get there? asked Mary wistfully, looking through her window at the far-off blue. It was so new and big and wonderful and such a heavenly colour. I don't know, answered Martha. There's never used a leg since there was born. It seems to me there couldn't walk five miles. It's five miles to our cottage. I should like to see your cottage. Martha stared at her a moment curiously before she took up her polishing brush and began to rub the grate again. She was thinking that the small plain face did not look quite as sour at this moment as it had done the first morning she saw it. It looked just a trifle like little Susan Ann's when she wanted something very much. I'll ask my mother about it, she said. She's one of them that nearly always sees a way to do things. It's my day out to-day, and I'm going home. Eh, I'm glad. Mrs. Medlock thinks a lot of my mother. Perhaps she could talk to her. I like your mother, said Mary. I should think they did, agreed Martha, polishing away. I've never seen her, said Mary. No, there hasn't, replied Martha. She sat up on her heels again and rubbed the end of her nose with the back of her hand as if puzzled for a moment, but she ended quite positively. Well, she's that sensible and hard-working and good-natured and clean that no one could help liking her whether they'd seen her or not. When I'm going home to her on my day out, I just jump for joy when I'm crossing the moor. I like Dickon, said Mary, and I've never seen him. 
"'Well,' said Martha stoutly, "'I've told thee that the very birds like him, "'and the rabbits and wild sheep and ponies "'and the foxes themselves. "'I wonder,' staring at her reflectively, "'what Dickon would think of thee.' "'He wouldn't like me,' said Mary, "'in her stiff, cold little way. "'No one does.' "'Martha looked reflective again. "'How does the like thyself?' she inquired, really quite as if she were curious to know. Mary hesitated a moment and thought it over. "'Not at all, really,' she answered. "'But I never thought of that before.' Martha grinned a little, as if at some homely recollection. "'Mother said that to me once,' she said. "'She was at her wash-tub, and I was in a bad temper and talking ill of folk, and she turns round on me and says, "'They're young vicks and the... there they stands.' "'Sayin' there doesn't like this one, and there doesn't like that one. "'How does there like thyself?' "'It made me laugh, and it brought me back to my senses in a minute.' She went away in high spirits as soon as she had given Mary her breakfast. She was going to walk five miles across the moor to the cottage, and she was going to help her mother with the washing, and do the week's baking, and enjoy herself thoroughly. Mary felt lonelier than ever when she knew she was no longer in the house. She went out into the garden as quickly as possible, and the first thing she did was to run round and round the fountain flower garden ten times. She counted the times carefully, and when she had finished she felt in better spirits. The sunshine made the whole place look different. The high, deep blue sky arched over Mistlethwaite as well as over the moor, and she kept lifting her face and looking up into it, trying to imagine what it would be like to lie down on one of the little snow-white clouds and float about. She went into the first kitchen garden, and found Ben Weatherstaff working there with two other gardeners. The change in the weather seemed to have done him good. He spoke to her of his own accord. "'Springtime's coming,' he said. "'Cannot the smell it?' Mary sniffed and thought she could. "'I smell something nice and fresh and damp,' she said. "'That's a good rich earth,' he answered, digging away. "'It's in a good humour making ready to grow things. It's glad when planting time comes.' It's dull in the winter when it's got naught to do. In the flower gardens out there things will be stirring down below in the dark. The sun's warm in them. You'll see bits of spikes sticking out of that black earth after a bit. What will they be? asked Mary. Crocuses and snowdrops and daffy-down-dillies. Has they never seen them? No, everything is hot and wet and green after the rains in India, said Mary, and I think things grow up in a night. "'These won't grow up in a night,' said Weatherstaff. "'They'll have to wait for em. "'They'll poke up a bit higher here, and push out a spike more there, "'and uncurl a leaf this day, and another that. "'You watch em. "'I'm going to,' answered Mary. "'Very soon she heard the soft rustling flight of wings again, "'and she knew at once that the robin had come again. "'He was very pert and lively, and hopped about so close to her feet, "'and put this head on one side, and looked at her so slyly, "'that she asked Ben Weatherstaff a question. "'Do you think he remembers me?' she said. "'Remembers thee?' said Weatherstaff indignantly. "'He knows every cabbage stump in the gardens, let alone the people. "'He's never seen a little wench here before, "'and he's bent on finding out all about thee. "'There's no need to try to hide anything from him.' "'A thing stirring down below in the dark in that garden where he lives?' "'Mary inquired. "'What garden?' grunted Weatherstaff, becoming surly again. "'The one where the old rose-trees are.' She could not help asking, because she wanted so much to know. Are all the flowers dead, or do some of them come again in the summer? Are there ever any roses? Ask him, said Ben Weatherstaff, hunching his shoulders toward the robin. Is he the only one as knows? 
No one else has seen inside it for ten years. Ten years was a long time, Mary thought. She had been born ten years ago. She walked away, slowly thinking. She had begun to like the garden just as she had begun to like the robin and Dickon and Martha's mother. She was beginning to like Martha, too. There seemed a good many people to like, when you were not so used to liking. She thought of the robin as one of the people. She went to her walk outside the long, ivy-covered wall over which she could see the treetops. And the second time she walked up and down, the most interesting and exciting thing happened to her, and it was all through Ben Weatherstaff's robin. She heard a chirp and a twitter, and when she looked at the bare flower-bed at her left side, there he was hopping about and pretending to peck things out of the earth to persuade her that he had not followed her. But she knew he had followed her, and the surprise so filled her with delight that she almost trembled a little. "'You do remember me!' she cried out. "'You do! You are prettier than anything else in the world!' She chirped and talked and coaxed, and he hopped and flirted his tail and twittered. It was as if he were talking. His red waistcoat was like satin, and he puffed his tiny breast out, and was so fine and so grand and so pretty that it wasn't really as if he was showing her how important and like a human person a robin could be. Mistress Mary forgot that she had ever been contrary in her life when he allowed her to draw closer and closer to him and bend down and talk and try to make something like robin sounds. Oh, to think that he should actually let her come as near to him as that! He knew nothing in the world would make her put out her hand toward him, or startle him in the least tiniest way. He knew it because he was a real person, only nicer than any other person in the world. She was so happy that she scarcely dared to breathe. The flower-bed was not quite bare. It was bare of flowers because the perennial plants had been cut down for the winter rest. But there were tall shrubs and low ones which grew together at the back of the bed, and as the robin hopped about under them she saw him hop over a small pile of freshly turned-up earth. He stopped on it to look for a worm. The earth had been turned up because a dog had been trying to dig up a mole, and he had scratched quite a deep hole. Mary looked at it, not really knowing why the hole was there, and as she looked she saw something almost buried in the newly turned soil. It was something like a ring of rusty iron or brass, and when the robin flew up into a tree nearby, she put out her hand and picked the ring up. It was more than a ring, however. It was an old key which looked as if it had been buried a long time. Mistress Mary stood up and looked at it with an almost frightened face as it hung from her finger. "'Perhaps it has been buried for ten years,' she said in a whisper. "'Perhaps it is the key to the garden.'" End of chapter 7 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 8 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Robin Who Showed the Way She looked at the key quite a long time. She turned it over and over and thought about it. As I have said before, she was not a child who had been trained to ask permission or consult her elders about things. All she thought about the key was that if it was the key to the closed garden, and she could find out where the door was, she could perhaps open it and see what was inside the walls, and what had happened to the old rose-trees. It was because it had been shut up so long that she wanted to see it. It seemed as if it must be different from other places, and that something strange must have happened to it during ten years. Besides that, if she liked it, she could go into it every day and shut the door behind her, and she could make up some play of her own and play it quite alone, because nobody would ever 
know where she was, but would think the door was still locked and the key buried in the earth. The thought of that pleased her very much. Living, as it were, all by herself in a house with a hundred mysteriously closed rooms, and having nothing whatever to do to amuse herself, had set her inactive brain to working and was actually awakening her imagination. There was no doubt that the fresh, strong, pure air from the moor had a great deal to do with it. Just as it had given her an appetite, and fighting with the wind had stirred her blood, so the same things had stirred her mind. In India she had always been too hot and languid, and weak to care much about anything. But in this place she was beginning to care, and to want to do new things. Already she felt less contrary, though she did not know why. She put the key in her pocket, and walked up and down her walk. No one but herself ever seemed to come there, so she could walk slowly and look at the wall, or rather at the ivy growing on it. The ivy was a baffling thing. Howsoever carefully she looked, she could see nothing but thickly growing glossy dark green leaves. She was very much disappointed. Something of her contrariness came back to her as she paced the walk and looked over at the treetops inside. It seemed so silly, she said to herself, to be near it and not to be able to get in. She took the key in her pocket when she went back to the house, and she made up her mind that she would always carry it with her when she went out, so that if she ever should find the hidden door, she would always be ready. Mrs. Medlock had allowed Martha to sleep all night at the cottage, but she was back at her work in the morning, with cheeks redder than ever, in the best of spirits. "'I got up at four o'clock,' she said. Eh, it was pretty on the moor with the birds getting up and the rabbits scampering about and the sunshine rising. I didn't walk all the way. A man gave me a ride in his cart and I did enjoy myself. She was full of stories of the delights of her day out. Her mother had been glad to see her and they had got the baking and washing all out of the way. She had even made each of the children a dough cake with a bit of brown sugar in it. I had them all piping hot when they came in from playing on the moor and the cottage all smelt a nice clean hot bacon, and there was a good fire, and they just shouted for joy. Our Dickon, he said our cottage was good enough for a king. In the evening they had all sat round the fire, and Martha and her mother had sewed patches on Tom's clothes and mended stockings, and Martha had told them about the little girl who had come from India, and who had been waited on all her life by what Martha called blacks, until she didn't know how to put on her own stockings. Eh, they did like to hear about you, said Martha. They wanted to know all about the blacks and the ships you came in. I couldn't tell them enough. Mary reflected a little. I'll tell you a great deal more before your next day out, she said, so that you will have more to talk about. I dare say they would like to hear about riding on elephants and camels and about the officers going to hunt tigers. My word, cried delighted Martha. It was set them clean off their heads. Would they really do that, miss? It would be same as a wild beast show like we heard they had in York once. India is quite different from Yorkshire, Mary said slowly as she thought the matter over. I never thought of that. Did Dickon and your mother like to hear you talk about me? Why, our Dickon's eyes nearly started out of his head. They got that round, answered Martha. But, mother, she was put out about you or seeming to be all by yourself, like. She said, Hasn't Mr. Craven got no governess for her, nor no nurse? And I said, No, he hasn't, though Mrs. Medlock says he will when he thinks of it, but she says he mayn't think of it for two or three years. I don't want a governess, said Mary sharply. 
"'But mother says you ought to be learning your book by this time, "'and you ought to have a woman to look after you, "'and she says, "'Now, Martha, you just think how you'd feel yourself in a big place like that, "'wandering about all alone and no mother. "'You do your best to cheer her up,' she says. "'And I said I would.' "'Mary gave her a long, steady look. "'You do cheer me up,' she said. "'I like to hear you talk.' "'Presently Martha went out of the room "'and came back with something held in her hands under her apron. "'What does her think?' she said with a cheerful grin. "'I bought thee a present.' "'A present?' exclaimed Mistress Mary. "'How could a cottage full of fourteen hungry people "'give any one a present? "'A man was driving across the moor peddling,' Martha explained, "'and he stopped his cart at our door. "'He had pots and pans and odds and ends, "'but Mother had no money to buy anything.' Just as he was going away, our Lisbeth Ellen called out, "'Mother, he's got skipping ropes with red and blue handles.' "'And mother,' she calls out quite sudden, "'Ere, stop down, mister. How much are they?' And he says, "'Tuppence.' And mother, she began fumbling in her pocket, and she says to me, "'Martha, that's brought me thy wages like a good lass, "'and I've got four places to put every penny. "'Tom just going to take tuppence out of it to buy that child a skipping rope.' "'And she bought one, and here it is.' "'She brought it out from under her apron "'and exhibited it quite proudly. "'It was a strong, slender rope "'with a striped red and blue handle at each end, "'but Mary Lennox had never seen a skipping rope before. "'She gazed at it with a mystified expression. "'What is it for?' she asked curiously. "'For?' cried out Martha. "'Does the mean that they've not got skipping ropes in India, "'for they've got elephants and tigers and camels?' "'No wonder most of them's black. "'This is what it's for. Just watch me.' "'And she ran into the middle of the room, "'and taking a handle in each hand, "'began to skip and skip and skip, "'while Mary turned in her chair to stare at her, "'and the queer faces in the old portrait "'seemed to stare at her too, "'and wonder what on earth this common little cottager "'had the impudence to be doing under their very noses. "'But Martha did not even see them.' The interest and curiosity in Mistress Mary's face delighted her, and she went on skipping and counted as she skipped until she had reached a hundred. "'I could skip longer than that,' she said when she stopped. "'I've skipped as much as five hundred when I was twelve, but I wasn't as fat then as I am now when I was in practice.' Mary got up from her chair, beginning to feel excited herself. "'It looks nice,' she said. "'Your mother is a kind woman. Do you think I could ever skip like that?' "'You just try it,' urged Martha, handing her the skipping rope. "'You can't skip a hundred at first, but if you practice, you'll mount up. "'That's what Mother said. "'She says nothing would do her more good than a skipping rope. "'It's the sensiblest toy a child can have. "'Let her play out in the fresh air, skipping, and it'll stretch her legs and arms "'and give her some strength in them.' "'It was plain that there was not a great deal of strength in Mistress Mary's arms and legs "'when she first began to skip.' She was not very clever at it, but she liked it so much that she did not want to stop. "'Put on the things and run and skip out the doors,' said Martha. "'Mother said I must tell you to keep out doors as much as you could, even when it rains a bit, so that as the wraps up warm.' Mary put on her coat and hat and took her skipping rope over her arm. She opened the door to go out, and then suddenly thought of something and turned back rather slowly. "'Martha,' she said, they were your wages. It was your two pence, really. Thank you. She said it stiffly because she was not used to thanking people or noticing that they did things for her. Thank you. 
she said, and held out her hand, because she did not know what else to do. Martha gave her hand a clumsy little shake, as if she was not accustomed to this sort of thing either. Then she laughed. "'Eh, that a queer old womanish thing,' she said. "'If that been our Elizabeth Ellen, they'd given me a kiss.' Mary looked stiffer than ever. "'Do you want me to kiss you?' Martha laughed again. "'Nay, not me,' she answered. "'If thou was different, perhaps they'd want to thyself. "'But thou isn't. Run off and play with thy rope.' Mistress Mary felt a little awkward as she went out of the room. Yorkshire people seemed strange, and Martha was always rather a puzzle to her. At first she had disliked her very much, but now she did not. The skipping rope was a wonderful thing. She counted and skipped and skipped and counted, until her cheeks were quite red and she was more interested than she had ever been since she was born. The sun was shining, and a little wind was blowing. Not a rough wind, but one which came in delightful little gusts, and brought a fresh scent of newly turned earth with it. She skipped round the fountain garden, and up one walk and down another. She skipped at last into the kitchen garden, and saw Ben Weatherstaff digging and talking to his robin, which was hopping about him. She skipped down the walk toward him, and he lifted his head, and looked at her with a curious expression. She had wondered if he would notice her. She wanted him to see her skip. "'Well,' he exclaimed, "'pon my word, perhaps thou art a young un after all. Perhaps hast got a child's blood in thy veins instead of sour buttermilk. Thou skipped red in thy cheeks, as sure as my name's Ben Weatherstaff. I wouldn't have believed thou could do it.' "'I never skipped before,' Mary said. I'm just beginning. I can only go up to twenty. Thou keep on, said Ben. Thou shapes well enough at it for a young un that's lived with Heathen. Just see how he's watching thee, jerking his head toward the robin. He followed after thee yesterday. He'll be at it again to-day. He'll be bound to find out what the skipping rope is. He's never seen one. Eh, shaking his head at the bird. That's curiosity will be the death of thee some time if thou doesn't look sharp. Mary skipped round all the gardens and round the orchard, resting every few minutes. At length she went to her own special walk, and made up her mind to try if she could skip the whole length of it. It was a good long skip, and she began slowly, but before she had gone halfway down the path, she was so hot and breathless that she was obliged to stop. She did not mind much, because she had already counted up to thirty. She stopped with a little laugh of pleasure, and there, lo and behold, was the robin swaying on a long branch of ivy. He'd followed her, and he greeted her with a chirp. As Mary had skipped toward him, she felt something heavy in her pocket strike against her at each jump, and when she saw the robin she laughed again. "'You showed me where the key was yesterday,' she said. "'You ought to show me the door today, but I don't believe you know.' The robin flew from his swinging spray of ivy on to the top of the wall, and he opened his beak and sang a loud, lovely trill, merely to show off. Nothing in the world is quite as adorably lovely as a robin when he shows off. And they are nearly always doing it. Mary Lennox had heard a great deal about magic in her Aya stories, and she always said that what happened almost at that moment was magic. One of the nice little gusts of wind rushed down the walk, and it was a stronger one than the rest. It was strong enough to wave the branches of the trees, and it was more than strong enough to sway the trailing sprays of untrimmed ivy hanging from the wall. Mary had stepped close to the robin, and suddenly the gusts of wind swung aside some loose ivy trails, and more suddenly still she jumped toward it and caught it in her hand. 
This she did because she had seen something under it, a round doorknob which had been covered by the leaves hanging over it. It was the knob of a door. She put her hands under the leaves and began to pull and push them aside. Thick as the ivy hung, it nearly all was a loose and swinging curtain, though some had crept over wood and iron. Mary's heart began to thump, and her hands began to shake a little in her delight and excitement. The robin kept singing and twittering away and tilting his head on one side as if he were as excited as she was. What was this under her hands which was square and made of iron and which her fingers found a hole in? It was the lock of the door which had been closed ten years, and she put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key, and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. It took her two hands to do it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath and looked behind her up the long walk to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did come, it seemed, and she took another long breath, because she could not help it, and she held back the swinging curtain of ivy and pushed back the door, which opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it and shut it behind her, and stood with her back against it, looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. End of chapter 8 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 9 of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Strangest House Anyone Ever Lived In It was the sweetest, most mysterious-looking place anyone could imagine. The high walls which shut it in were covered with the leafless stems of climbing roses which were so thick that they were matted together. Mary Lennox knew they were roses because she had seen a great many roses in India. All the ground was covered with the grass of a wintry brown and out of it grew clumps of bushes which were surely rose bushes if they were alive. There were numbers of standard roses which had so spread their branches that they were like little trees. There were other trees in the garden, and one of the things which made the place look strangest and loveliest was that climbing roses had run all over them and swung down long tendrils which made light swaying curtains, and here and there they had caught at each other or at a far-reaching branch and had crept from one tree to another and made lovely bridges of themselves. There were neither leaves nor roses on them now, and Mary did not know whether they were dead or alive but their thin grey or brown branches and sprays looked like a sort of hazy mantle spreading over everything, walls and trees and even brown grass where they had fallen from their fastenings and run along the ground. It was this hazy tangle from tree to tree which made it all look so mysterious. Mary had thought it must be different from other gardens which had not been left all by themselves so long, and indeed it was different from any other place she had ever seen in her life. How still it is! she whispered. How still! Then she waited a moment and listened at the stillness. The robin who had flown to his treetop was still as all the rest. He did not even flutter his wings. He sat without stirring and looked at Mary. No wonder it is still, she whispered again. I am the first person who has spoken here for ten years. She moved away from the door, stepping as softly as if she were afraid of awakening someone. She was glad that there was grass under her feet and that her steps made no sounds. She walked under one of the fairy-like grey arches 
between the trees and looked up at the sprays and tendrils which formed them. "'I wonder if they are all quite dead,' she said. "'Is it all a quite dead garden? I wish it wasn't.' If she had been Ben Weatherstaff, she could have told whether the wood was alive by looking at it, but she could only see that there were only grey or brown sprays and branches, and none showed any signs of even a tiny leaf but anywhere. But she was inside the wonderful garden, and she could come through the door under the ivy any time, and she felt as if she had found a world all her own. The sun was shining inside the four walls, and the high arch of blue sky over the particular piece of mistlethwaite seemed even more brilliant and soft than it was over the moor. The robin flew down from his treetop and hopped about or flew after her from one bush to another. He chirped a good deal and had a very busy air, as if he were showing her things. Everything was strange and silent, and she seemed to be hundreds of miles away from anyone, but somehow she did not feel lonely at all. All that troubled her was her wish that she knew whether all the roses were dead, or if perhaps some of them had lived, and might put out leaves and buds as the weather got warmer. She did not want it to be a quite dead garden. If it were a quite alive garden, how wonderful it would be, and what thousands of roses would grow on every side! Her skipping rope had hung over her arm when she came in, and after she had walked about for a while she thought she would skip round the whole garden, stopping when she wanted to look at things. There seemed to have been grass paths here and there, and in one or two corners there were alcoves of evergreen, with stone seats or tall moss-covered flower urns in them. As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower-bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth, some sharp little pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes! They are tiny growing things, and they might be crocuses or snowdrops or daffodils, she whispered. She bent very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go all over the garden and look. She did not skip, but walked. She went slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass, and after she had gone round, Trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp, pale green points, and she had become quite excited again. "'It isn't a quite dead garden,' she cried out softly to herself. "'Even if the roses are dead, there are other things alive.' She did not know anything about gardening, but the grass seemed so thick in some places where the green points were pushing their way through that she thought they did not seem to have room enough to grow. She searched about until she found a rather sharp piece of wood, and knelt down and dug and weeded out the weeds and grass until she made nice little clear patches around them. "'Now they look as if they could breathe,' she said after she had finished with the first ones. "'I'm going to do ever so many more. I'll do all I can see. If I haven't time today, I can come tomorrow.' She went from place to place, and dug and weeded, and enjoyed herself so immensely that she was led on from bed to bed and into the grass under the trees. The exercise made her so warm that she first threw her coat off, and then her hat, and without knowing it she was smiling down on to the grass and the pale green points all the time. The robin was tremendously busy. He was very much pleased to see gardening begun on his own estate. He had often wondered at Ben Weatherstaff, where gardening is done all sorts of delightful things to eat are turned up with the soil. Now here was this new kind of creature, who was not half Ben's size, and yet had had the sense to come into his garden and begin at once. 
Mistress Mary worked in her garden until it was time to go to her midday dinner. In fact, she was rather late in remembering, and when she put on her coat and hat and picked up her skipping rope, she could not believe that she had worked two or three hours. She had been actually happy all the time, and dozens of dozens of the tiny pale green points were to be seen in cleared places, looking twice as cheerful as they had looked before when the grass and weeds had been smothering them. "'I shall come back in the afternoon,' she said, looking all round at her new kingdom, and speaking to the trees and the rose-bushes as if they heard her. Then she ran lightly across grass, pushed open the slow old door, and slipped through it under the ivy. She had such red cheeks and such bright eyes, and ate such a dinner, that Martha was delighted. Two pieces of meat and two whelps of rice pudding, she said. Eh, mother would be pleased when I tell her what the skipping rope's done for thee. In the course of her digging with her pointed stick, Mistress Mary had found herself digging up a sort of white root rather like an onion. She had put it back in its place and patted the earth carefully down on it, and just now she wondered if Martha could tell her what it was. Martha, she said, what are those white roots that look like onions? They're bulbs, answered Martha. Lots of spring flowers grow from them. The very little ones are snowdrops and crocuses, and the big ones are narcissuses, and jonquils and daffy-down-dillers. The biggest of all is lilies and purple flags. Eh, they are nice. Dickens got a whole lot of them planted in our bitter garden. Does Dickon know all about them? asked Mary, a new idea taking possession of her. Our Dickon can make a flower grow out of a brick walk. Mother says he just whispers things out of the ground. Do bulbs live a long time? Will they live years and years if no one helped them? inquired Mary anxiously. There's things as helps themselves, said Martha. That's why poor folk can afford to have them. If you don't trouble them, most of them will work away underground for a lifetime and spread out and have little ones. There's a place in the park woods here where there's snowdrops by thousands. They're the prettiest sight in Yorkshire when the spring comes. No one knows when they were first planted. I wish the spring was here now, said Mary. I want to see all the things that grow in England. She had finished her dinner and gone to her favourite seat on the hearthrug. I wish, I wish I had a spade, she said. "'Whatever does they want a spade for?' asked Martha, laughing. "'Aren't they going to take to digging? I must tell mother that, too.' Mary looked at the fire and pondered a little. She must be careful if she meant to keep her secret kingdom. She wasn't doing any harm, but if Mr. Craven found out about the open door, he would be fearfully angry and get a new key and lock it up forevermore. She really could not bear that. "'This is such a big, lonely place.' she said slowly, as if she were turning matters over in her mind. The house is lonely, and the park is lonely, and the gardens are lonely. So many places seem shut up. I never did many things in India, but there were more people to look at, natives and soldiers marching by, and sometimes bands playing, and my ayah told me stories. There's no one to talk to here except you and Ben Weatherstaff, and you have to do your work, and Ben Weatherstaff won't speak to me often. I thought if I had a little spade I could dig somewhere as he does, and I might make a little garden if he would give me some seeds. Martha's face quite lighted up. There now, she exclaimed. If that wasn't one of the things Mother said, she said, there's such a lot of rooms in that big place, why don't they give her a bit for herself, even if she doesn't plant nothing but parsley and radishes? She'd dig and rake away and be right down happy over it. Then was the very words she said. Were they? said Mary. How many things she knows, doesn't she? 
air, said Martha. It's like she says, a woman as brings up twelve children, learns something besides her ABC. Children's as good as arithmetic to set you finding out things. How much would a little spade cost? A little one, Mary asked. Well, was Martha's reflective answer, at Thwaite Village, there's a shop or so, and I saw little garden sets with a spade and a rake and a fork all tied together for two shillings, and they were stout enough to work with, too. I've got more than that in my purse, said Mary. Mrs. Morrison gave me five shillings, and Mrs. Medlock gave me some money for Mr. Craven. Does he remember thee that much? exclaimed Martha. Mrs. Medlock said I was to have a shilling a week to spend. She gives me one every Saturday. I didn't know what to spend it on. My word, that's riches, said Martha. Thou can buy anything in the world thou wants. The rent of our cottage is only one and threepence, and it's like pulling eye-teeth to get it. Now I've just thought of something. Putting her hands on her hips. What? said Mary eagerly. In the shop at Thwaite they sell packages of flower-seeds for a penny each, and our Dickon, he knows which is the prettiest ones and how to make em grow. He walks over to Thwaite many a day just for the fun of it. Does thou know how to print letters? Suddenly. I know how to write, Mary answered. Martha shook her head. Our Dickon can only read printing. If thou could print, we could write a letter to him and ask him to go and buy the garden tools and the seeds at the same time. Oh, you're a good girl, Mary cried. You are, really. I didn't know you were so nice. I know I can print letters if I try. Let's ask Mrs. Medlock for a pen and ink and some paper. I've got some of my own, said Martha. I bought them so I could print a bit of a letter to my mother of a Sunday. I'll go and get it. She ran out of the room, and Mary stood by the fire and twisted her thin little hands together with sheer pleasure. If I have a spade, she whispered, I can make the earth nice and soft and dig up weeds. If I have seeds and can make flowers grow, the garden won't be dead at all. It will come alive. She did not go out again that afternoon, because when Martha returned with her pen and ink and paper, she was obliged to clear the table and carry the plates and dishes downstairs, and when she got into the kitchen, Mrs. Medlock was there and told her to do something, so Mary waited for what seemed to her a long time before she came back. Then it was a serious piece of work to write to Dickon. Mary had been taught very little because her governess had disliked her too much to stay with her. She could not spell particularly well, but she found that she could print letters when she tried. This was the letter Martha dictated to her. My dear Dickon, this comes hoping to find you well as it leaves me at present. Miss Mary has plenty of money, and will you go to Thwaite and buy her some flower seeds and a set of garden tools to make a flower bed? Pick the prettiest ones and easy to grow because she has never done it before and lived in India, which is different. Give my love to mother and every one of you. Miss Mary is going to tell me a lot more, so that on my next day out you can hear about elephants and camels and gentlemen going hunting lions and tigers. Your loving sister, Martha Phoebe Sowerby. We'll put the money in the envelope, and I'll get the butcher boy to take it in his cart. It's a great friend of Dickens, said Martha. How shall I get the things when Dickon buys them? He'll bring them to you himself. He'll like to walk over this way. Oh! exclaimed Mary. Then I shall see him. I never thought I should see Dickon. Does the want to see him? asked Martha suddenly, for Mary had looked so pleased. Yes, I do. I never saw a boy foxes and crows loved. I want to see him very much. 
Martha gave a little start, as if she remembered something. "'Now to think,' she broke out, "'to think of me forgetting that there, "'and I thought I was going to tell you first thing this morning. "'I asked Mother, and she said she'd ask Mrs. Medlock her own self.' "'Do you mean,' Mary began, "'what I said Tuesday, "'ask her if she might be driven out to our cottage some day "'and have a bit of Mother's hot oat-cake and butter and a glass of milk?' It seemed as if all the interesting things were happening in one day. To think of going over the moor in daylight and when the sky was blue. To think of going into the cottage which had twelve children. Does she think Mrs. Medlock would let me go? she asked quite anxiously. Aye, she thinks she would. She knows what a tidy woman mother is and how clean she keeps the cottage. If I went I should see your mother as well as Dickon, said Mary, thinking it over and liking the idea very much. She doesn't seem to be like the mothers in India. Her work in the garden and the excitement of the afternoon ended by making her feel quiet and thoughtful. Martha stayed with her until tea-time, but they sat in comfortable quiet and talked very little. But just before Martha went downstairs for the tea-tray, Mary asked a question. "'Martha,' she said, "'has the scullery maid had the toothache again to-day?' Martha certainly started slightly. "'What makes thee ask that?' she said. "'Because when I waited so long for you to come back, "'I opened the door and walked down the corridor to see if you were coming. "'And I heard that far-off crying again, just as we heard it the other night. "'There isn't a wind today, so you see it couldn't have been the wind.' Eh, said Martha restlessly. "'Thou mustn't go walking about the corridors and listening. "'Mr. Craven would be that there angry, there's no knowing what he'd do.' "'I wasn't listening,' said Mary. "'I was just waiting for you.' and I heard it. That's three times. My word, there's Mrs. Medlock's bell, said Martha, and she almost ran out of the room. It's the strangest house anyone ever lived in, said Mary drowsily, as she dropped her head on the cushioned seat of the armchair near her. Fresh air and digging and skipping rope had made her feel so comfortably tired that she fell asleep. End of chapter 9 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Ten of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Dickon. The sun shone down for nearly a week on the Secret Garden. The Secret Garden was what Mary called it when she was thinking of it. She liked the name, and she liked still more the feeling that when its beautiful old walls shut her in, no one knew where she was. It seemed almost like being shut out of the world in some fairy place. The few books she had read and liked had been fairy story books, and she had read of secret gardens in some of the stories. Sometimes people went to sleep in them for a hundred years, which she had thought must be rather stupid. She had no intention of going to sleep, and in fact she was becoming wider awake every day which passed at Misselthwaite. She was beginning to like to be out of doors. She no longer hated the wind, but enjoyed it. She could run faster and longer, and she could skip up to a hundred. The bulbs in the secret garden must have been much astonished. Such nice-clear places were made round them that they had all the breathing space they wanted, and really, if Mistress Mary had known it, they began to cheer up under the dark earth and work tremendously. The sun could get at them and warm them, and when the rain came down it could reach them at once, so they began to feel very much alive. Mary was an odd, determined little person, and now she had something interesting to be determined about, she was very much absorbed indeed. 
She worked and dug and pulled up weeds steadily, only becoming more pleased with her work every hour instead of tiring of it. It seemed to her like a fascinating sort of play. She found many more of the sprouting pale green points that she had ever hoped to find. They seemed to be starting up everywhere, and each day she was sure she found tiny new ones, some so tiny that they barely peeped above the earth. There were so many that she remembered what Martha had said about the snowdrops by thousands, and about bulbs spreading and making new ones. These had been left to themselves for ten years, and perhaps they had spread, like the snowdrops, into thousands. She wondered how long it would be before they showed that they were flowers. Sometimes she stopped digging to look at the garden and tried to imagine what it would be like when it was covered with thousands of lovely things in bloom. During that week of sunshine she became more intimate with Ben Weatherstaff. She surprised him several times by seeming to start up beside him as if she sprang out of the earth. The truth was that she was afraid that he would pick up his tools and go away if he saw her coming, so she always walked toward him as silently as possible. But in fact he did not object to her as strongly as he had at first. Perhaps he was secretly rather flattered by her evident desire for his elderly company. Then, also, she was more civil than she had been. He did not know that when she first saw him she spoke to him as if she would have spoken to a native, and had not known that a cross, sturdy old Yorkshire man was not accustomed to salaam to his masters and be merely commanded by them to do things. That like the robin, he said to her one morning when he lifted his head and saw her standing by him. I never knows when I shall see thee, or which side they'll come from. His friends with me now, said Mary. That's like him, snapped Ben Weatherstaff. Making up the women folk just for vanity and flightiness. There's nothing he wouldn't do for the sake of showing off and flighting his tail feathers. Is as full of pride as eggs full of meat. He very seldom talked much, and sometimes did not even answer Mary's questions, except by a grunt, but this morning he said more than usual. He stood up and rested one hobnailed boot on the top of his spade while he looked her over. How long has the been here? he jerked out. I think it's about a month, she answered. Thus beginning to do Misselthwaite credit, he said. Thus a bit fatter than there was. Then it's not quite so yellow. Thou looked like a young pluck crow when the first came into this garden. Thinks I to myself, I never set eyes on an uglier, sour-faced young un. Mary was not vain, and she had never thought much of her looks. She was not greatly disturbed. I know I'm fatter, she said. My stockings are getting tighter. They used to make wrinkles. There's the robin, Ben Weatherstaff. There indeed was the robin, and she thought he looked nicer than ever. His red waistcoat was as glossy as satin, and he flirted his wings and tail, and tilted his head and hopped about with all sorts of lively graces. He seemed determined to make Ben Weatherstaff admire him. But Ben was sarcastic. "'Aye, there thou art,' he said. "'Thou can put up with me for a bit sometimes when there's got no one's better. There's been reddening up thy waistcoat and polishing thy feathers this two weeks. I know what there's up to.' There's caught in some bold young madam somewhere, telling thy lies, her uh, about being the finest cock robin on Mistlemoor, and ready to fight all the rest of em. Oh, look at him! exclaimed Mary. The robin was evidently in a fascinating, bold mood. He hopped closer and closer, and looked at Ben Weatherstaff more and more engagingly. He flew on to the nearest currant bush, and tilted his head, and sang a little song right at him. Thou thinks thou'll get over me by doing that? said Ben, wrinkling his face up in such a way that Mary felt sure he was trying not to look pleased. "'Thou thinks no one can stand out against thee. That's what thou thinks. 
The robin spread his wings. Mary could scarcely believe her eyes. He flew right up to the handle of Ben Weatherstaff's spade and alighted on the top of it. Then the old man's face wrinkled itself slowly into a new expression. He stood as if he were afraid to breathe, as if he would not have stirred for the world, lest his robin should start away. He spoke in quite a whisper. "'Well, I'm danged,' he said, as softly as if he were saying something quite different. "'That does know how to get at a chap. That does. That's fair unearthly. There's so knowing.' And he stood without stirring, almost without drawing his breath, until the robin gave another flirt to his wings and flew away. Then he stood looking at the handle of the spade as if there might be magic in it, and then he began to dig again, and said nothing for several minutes. But because he kept breaking into a slow grin now and then, Mary was not afraid to talk to him. "'Have you a garden of your own?' she asked. "'No. I'm bachelor and lodge with Martin at the gate.' "'If you had one,' said Mary, "'what would you plant? Cabbages and taters and onions.' "'But you wanted to make a flower-garden?' persisted Mary. "'What would you plant?' "'Bulbs and sweet-smelling things, but mostly roses.' Mary's face lighted up. "'Do you like roses?' she said. Ben Weatherstaff rooted up a weed and threw it aside before he answered. "'Well, yes, I do. I was learned that by a young lady I was gardener to. She had a lot in a place she was fond of, and she loved em like they were children, or robins. I've seen her bend over and kiss em.' He dragged out another weed and scowled at it. "'That were as much as ten year ago.' "'Where is she now?' asked Mary, much interested. "'Heaven,' he answered, and drove his spade deep into the soil. "'According to what Parson says?' "'What happened to the roses?' Mary asked again, more interested than ever. "'They was left to themselves.' Mary was becoming quite excited. "'Did they quite die? Do roses quite die when they are left to themselves?' she ventured. "'Well, I'd got to like em, and... I liked her, and she liked them, Ben Weatherstaff admitted reluctantly. Once or twice a year I'd go and work at em a bit, and prune em, and dig about the roots. They run wild, but they was in rich soil, so some of em lived. When they have no leaves, and look grey and brown and dry, how can you tell whether they are dead or alive? inquired Mary. Wait till the spring gets at em. Wait till the sun shines and the rain and the rain falls on the sunshine and then they'll find out. How? How? cried Mary, forgetting to be careful. Look along the twigs and branches, and if they see a bit of brown lump swelling here and there, watch it after the warm rain and see what happens. He stood suddenly and looked curiously at her eager face. Why does the care so much about roses and such all of a sudden? he demanded. Mistress Mary felt her face grow red. She was almost afraid to answer. "'I—I I want to play that—that that I have a garden of my own,' she stammered. "'I—there is nothing for me to do. I have nothing—and no one.' "'Well,' said Ben Weatherstaff, slowly as he watched her, "'that's true. There hasn't.' He said it in such an odd way that Mary wondered if he was actually a little sorry for her. She had never felt sorry for herself. She had only felt tired and cross because she disliked people and things so much. But now the world seemed to be changing and getting nicer. If no one found out about the secret garden, she should enjoy herself always. 
She stayed with him for ten or fifteen minutes longer, and asked him as many questions as she dared. He answered every one of them in his queer, grunting way, and he did not seem really cross, and did not pick up his spade and leave her. He said something about roses just as she was going away, and it reminded her of the ones he had said he had been fond of. "'Do you go and see those other roses now?' she asked. "'Not been this year. My rheumatics has made me too stiff in the joints.' he said in his grumbling voice, and then quite suddenly he seemed to get angry with her, though she did not see why he should. "'Now look here,' he said sharply, "'don't there ask so many questions? That the worst wrench for asking question I've ever come across. Get thee gone and play thee. I've done talking for today.' And he said it so crossly that she knew that there was not the least use in staying another minute. She went skipping slowly down the outside walk, thinking him over, and saying to herself that, queer as it was, here was another person whom she liked in spite of his crossness. She liked old Ben Weatherstaff. Yes, she did like him. She always wanted to try to make him talk to her. Also she began to believe that he knew everything in the world about flowers. There was a laurel-hedged walk which curved round the secret garden, and ended at a gate which opened into a wood in the park. She thought she would slip round this walk, and look into the wood and see if there were any rabbits hopping about. She enjoyed the skipping very much, and when she reached the little gate she opened it, and went through because she heard a low, peculiar whistling sound, and wanted to find out what it was. It was a very strange thing indeed. She quite caught her breath as she stopped to look at it. A boy was sitting under a tree, with his back against it, playing on a rough wooden pipe. He was a funny-looking boy, about twelve. He looked very clean, and his nose turned up, and his cheeks were as red as poppies, and never had Mistress Mary seen such round and such blue eyes in any boy's face. And on the trunk of the tree he leaned against, a brown squirrel was clinging and watching him, and from behind a bush nearby a cock-pheasant was delicately stretching his neck to peep out, and quite near him were two rabbits sitting up and sniffing with tremulous noses and actually it appeared as if they were all drawing near to watch him and listen to the strange little low call his pipe seemed to make. When he saw Mary, he held up his hand and spoke to her in a voice almost as low and rather like his piping. "'Don't they move?' he said. "'It have fright them.' Mary remained motionless. He stopped playing his pipe and began to rise from the ground. He moved so slowly that it scarcely seemed as though he were moving at all but at last he stood on his feet, and then the squirrel scampered back up into the branches of his tree. The pheasant withdrew his head, and the rabbits dropped on all fours, and began to hop away, though not as all as if they were frightened. "'I'm Dickon,' the boy said. "'I know that, Miss Mary.' Then Mary realised that somehow she had known at first that he was Dickon. Who else could have been charming rabbits and pheasants, as the natives charm snakes in India? He had a wide, red, curving mouth, and his smile spread all over his face. "'I got up slow,' he explained, "'because if thou makes a quick move it startles em. A body has to move gentle and speak low when wild things is about.' He did not speak to her as if they had never seen each other before, but as if he knew her quite well. Mary knew nothing about boys, and she spoke to him a little stiffly because she felt rather shy. "'Did you get Martha's letter?' she asked. He nodded his curly, rust-coloured head. "'That's why I come.' He stood to pick up something which had been lying on the ground beside him when he piped. "'I've got the garden tools. There's a little spade and rake and a fork and hoe. 
Eh, uh, they're good uns. There's a trowel, too, and the woman in the shop threw a packet of white poppies and one a blue larkspur when I bought the other seeds. Will you show the seeds to me? Mary said. She wished she could talk as he did. His speech was so quick and easy. It sounded as if he liked her, and was not the least afraid she would not like him, though he was only a common moor boy, in patched clothes with a funny face and a rough, rusty red head. As she came closer to him, she noticed that there was a clean, fresh scent of heather and grass and leaves about him, almost as if he were made of them. She liked it very much, and when she looked into his funny face with the red cheeks and round blue eyes, she forgot that she had felt shy. "'Let us sit down on this log and look at them,' she said. They sat down, and he took a clumsy little brown paper package out of his coat pocket. He untied the string, and inside there were ever so many neater and smaller packages with a picture of a flower on each one. "'There's a lot of mignonettes and poppies,' he said. "'Mignonettes, the sweetest smelling thing as grows, and it'll grow wherever you cast it, same as poppies will. Them's'll come up and bloom if you just whistle to em. Them's the nicest of all.' He stopped and turned his head quickly, his poppy-cheeked face lighting up. "'What's that robin as is calling us?' he said. The chirp came from a thick holly bush, bright with scarlet berries, and Mary thought she knew whose it was. "'Is it really calling us?' she asked. "'Aye,' said Dickon, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. "'He's calling some of his friends with. "'That same as saying, "'Here I am, look at me. "'I want a bit of a chat. "'There he is in the bush. "'Whose is he?' "'He's Ben Weatherstaff's, "'but I think he knows me a little,' answered Mary. "'Aye, he knows thee,' said Dickon in his low voice again. "'And he likes thee. "'He's took thee on. "'He'll tell me all about thee in a minute.' He moved quite close to the bush with the slow movement Mary had noticed before, and then he made a sound almost like the robin's own twitter. The robin listened a few seconds intently, and then answered quite as if he were replying to a question. "'Aye, he's a friend of yours,' chuckled Dickon. "'Do you think he is?' cried Mary eagerly. She did so want to know. "'Do you think he really likes me?' "'He wouldn't come near thee if he didn't,' answered Dickon. Birds is rare choosers, and a robin can flout a body worse than a man. See, he's making up to thee now. Cannot the see a chap? He's saying, and it really seemed as if it must be true. He so sidled and twittered and tilted as he hopped on his bush. Do you understand everything birds say? said Mary. Dickens grin spread until he seemed all wide, red, curving mouth, and rubbed his rough head. I think I do, and they think I do, he said. I've lived on the moor with them so long. I've watched them break shell and come out and fledge and learn to fly and begin to sing till I think I'm one of them. Sometimes I think perhaps I'm a bird or a fox or a rabbit or a squirrel or even a beetle and I don't know it. He laughed and came back to the log and began to talk about the flower seeds again. He told her what they looked like and when they were flowers. He told her how to plant them and watch them and feed and water them. See here, he said suddenly, turning round to look at her. I'll plant them for thee myself. Where's the garden? Mary's thin hands clutched each other as they lay in her lap. She did not know what to say, so for a whole minute she said nothing. She had never thought of this. She felt miserable, and she felt as if she went red and then pale. There's got a bit of garden, hasn't there? Dickon said. 
It was true that she had turned red and then pale. Dickon saw her do it, and as she still said nothing he began to be puzzled. "'Wouldn't they give thee a bit?' he asked. "'Hasn't they got any yet?' She held her hands tighter and turned her eyes toward him. "'I don't know anything about boys,' she said slowly. "'Could you keep a secret, if I told you one? It's a great secret. I don't know what I should do if anyone found it out. I believe I should die.' She said the last sentence quite fiercely. Dickon looked more puzzled than ever, and even rubbed his hand over his rough head again, but he answered quite good-humouredly. "'I'm keeping secrets all the time,' he said. "'If I couldn't keep secrets from the other lads, secrets about foxes, cubs, and birds, nests, and wild things, holes, there'd be naught safe on the moor. I, I can keep secrets.' Mistress Mary did not mean to put out her hand and clutch his sleeve, but she did it. "'I've stolen the garden,' she said very fast. "'It isn't mine. It isn't anybody's. Nobody wants it. Nobody cares for it. Nobody ever goes into it. Perhaps everything is dead in it already. I don't know.' She began to feel hot and as contrary as she had ever felt in her life. "'I don't care. I don't care. Nobody has any right to take it from me when I care about it, and they don't. They're letting it die, all shut in by itself.' She ended passionately, and she threw her arms over her face and burst out crying. Poor little Mistress Mary! Dickens' curious eyes grew rounder and rounder. "'Eh,' he said, drawing his exclamation out slowly, and the way he did it meant both wonder and sympathy. "'I've nothing to do.' said Mary. Nothing belongs to me. I found it myself, and I got into it myself. I was only just like the robin, and they wouldn't take it from the robin. Where is it? asked Dickon in a dropped voice. Mistress Mary got up from the log at once. She knew she felt contrary again, and obstinate, and she did not care at all. She was imperious and Indian, and at the same time hot and sorrowful. Come with me, and I'll show you, she said. She led him around the laurel path, and to the walk where the ivy grew so thickly. Dickon followed her with a queer, almost pitying look on his face. He felt as if he were being led to look at some strange bird's nest, and must move softly. When she stepped to the wall and lifted the hanging ivy, he started. There was a door, and Mary pushed it slowly open, and they passed in together, and then Mary stood and waved her hand around defiantly. "'It's this,' she said. "'It's a secret garden.' and I'm the only one in the world who wants it to be alive. Dickon looked round and round about it, and round and round again. Eh, he almost whispered, it's a queer pretty place. It's like as if a body was in a dream. End of chapter 10 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Eleven of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: The Nest of the Missile Thrush. For two or three minutes he stood looking round him, while Mary watched him, and then he began to walk about softly, even more lightly than Mary had walked the first time she had found herself inside the four walls. His eyes seemed to be taking in everything the grey trees with the grey creepers climbing over them and hanging from their branches, the tangle on the walls and among the grass, the evergreen alcoves 
with the stone seats and tall flower urns standing in them. "'I never thought I'd see this place,' he said at last in a whisper. "'Did you know about it?' asked Mary. She spoken aloud, and he made a sign to her. "'We must talk low,' he said, "'or someone will hear us. Wonder what's to do in here.' "'Oh, I forgot!' said Mary, feeling frightened and putting her hand quickly against her mouth. "'Did you know about the garden?' she asked when she had recovered herself. Dickon nodded. "'Martha told me there was one, as no one ever went inside,' he answered. "'Used to wonder what it was like.' He stopped and looked round at the lovely grey tangle about him, and his round eyes looked queerly happy. "'Eh, the nest it'll be here come springtime,' he said. It'd be the safest nesting place in England. No one never coming near and tangles of trees and roses to build in. I wonder all the birds on the moor don't build here. Mistress Mary put her hand on his arm again without knowing it. Will there be roses? she whispered. Can you tell? I thought perhaps they were all dead. Eh, uh, no, not them. Not all of them, he answered. Look here. He stepped over to the nearest tree an old, old one with grey lichen all over its bark, but upholding a curtain of tangled sprays and branches. He took out a thick knife from his pocket and opened one of its blades. "'There's a lot of dead wood as ought to be cut out,' he said, "'and there's a lot of old wood. But it made some new last year. This here's a new bit.' And he touched a shoot which looked brownish-green instead of hard, dry grey. Mary touched it herself in an eager, reverent way. "'That one,' she said. "'Is that one quite alive, quite?' Dickon curved his wide, smiling mouth. "'It's as wick as you or me,' he added, and Mary remembered that Martha had told her that wick meant alive or lively. "'I'm glad it's wick,' she cried out in her whisper. "'I want them all to be wick. Let us go round the garden and count how many wick ones there are.' She quite panted with eagerness, and Dickon was as eager as she was. They went from tree to tree and from bush to bush. Dickon carried his knife in his hand and showed her things which he thought wonderful. "'They've run wild,' he said. "'But the strongest ones have fair thrived on it. The delicatest ones have died out, but the others have growed and growed and spread and spread till there's a wonder. See here!' And he pulled down a thick, grey, dry-looking branch. "'A body might think this was dead wood, but I don't believe it is, down to the root. I'll cut it low down and see.' He knelt and with his knife cut the lifeless-looking branch through, not far above the earth. "'There,' he said exultantly, "'I told thee so. There's green in that wood yet. Look at it.' Mary was down on her knees before he spoke, gazing with all her might. "'When it looks a bit greenish and juicy like that, it's wick,' he explained. "'When the inside is dry and breaks easy, like this piece I've cut off, it's done for. There's a big root here is all.' There's a big root here as all this live wood sprung out of, and if the old wood's cut off, and it's dug round and took care of, there'll be— He stopped and lifted his face to look up at the climbing and hanging sprays above him. There'll be a fountain of roses here this summer. They went from bush to bush and from tree to tree. He was very strong and clever with his knife, and knew how to cut the dry and dead wood away, and could tell when an unpromising bow or twig had still green life in it. In the course of half an hour Mary thought she could tell too, and when he cut through a lifeless-looking branch she would cry out joyfully under her breath when she caught sight of the least shade of moist green. The spade and hoe and fork were very useful. 
He showed her how to use the fork while he dug about roots with the spade and stirred the earth and let the air in. They were working industriously round one of the biggest standard roses when he caught sight of something which made him utter an exclamation of surprise. "'Why?' he cried, pointing to the grass a few feet away. "'Who did that there?' It was one of Mary's own little clearings round the pale green points. "'I did it,' said Mary. "'Why, I thought they didn't know nothing about gardening.' he exclaimed. "'I don't,' she answered. "'But they were so little, and the grass was so thick and strong, and they looked as if they had no room to breathe, so I made a place for them. I don't even know what they are.' Dickon went and knelt down by them, smiling his wide smile. "'Thou was right,' he said. "'A gardener couldn't have told thee better. They'll grow now like Jack's beanstalk. They're crocuses and snowdrops, and these here is narcissus, turning to another patch, and here's daffodown dillies. Eh, they will be a sight. He ran from one clearing to another. Thou's done a good lot of work for such a little wench, he said, looking her over. I'm growing fatter, said Mary, and I'm growing stronger. I used always to be tired. When I dig, I'm not tired at all. I like to smell the earth when it's turned up. It's rare good for thee, he said, nodding his head wisely. There's naught as nice as the smell of good clean earth except the smell of fresh-growing things when the rain falls on them. I get out on the moor many a day when it's raining, and I lie under a bush and listen to the soft swish of drops on the heather, and I just sniff and sniff. My nose end fair quivers like a rabbit's mother says. Do you never catch a cold? inquired Mary, gazing at him wonderingly. She'd never seen such a funny boy or such a nice one. Not me, he said, grinning. I never catched cold since I was born. I wasn't brought up nesh enough. I've chased about the moor in all weathers, same as the rabbits does. Mother says I've sniffed up too much fair air for twelve year to ever get to sniffing with cold. I'm as tough as a white thorn knobstick. He was working all the time he was talking, and Mary was following him and helping him with her fork or the trowel. There's a lot of work to do here, he said once, looking about quite exultantly. Will you come again and help me to do it? Mary begged. I'm sure I can help, too. I can dig and pull up weeds and do whatever you tell me. Oh, do come, Dickon. I'll come every day if they wants me, rain or shine, he answered stoutly. It's the best fun I ever had in my life, shutting here and wakening up a garden. If you will come, said Mary, if you will help me to make it alive, I'll... I don't know what I'll do, she ended helplessly. What could you do for a boy like that? I'll tell thee what they'll do said Dickon, with his happy grin. They'll get fat, and they'll get as hungry as a young fox, and they'll learn how to talk to the robin same as I do. Eh, uh, we'll have a lot of fun. He began to walk about, looking up in the trees and at the walls and bushes with a thoughtful expression. I wouldn't want to make it look like a gardener's garden, all clipped and spick and span, would you? he said. It's nicer like this, with things running wild and swinging and catching hold of each other. Don't let us make it tidy, said Mary anxiously. It wouldn't seem like a secret garden if it was tidy. Dickon stood rubbing his rusty head with a rather puzzled look. It's a secret garden, sure enough, he said, but seems like someone besides the robin must have been in it since it was shut up ten year ago. But the door was locked and the key was buried, said Mary. No one could get in. That's true, he answered. It's a queer place. Seems to me as if there'd been a bit of pruning done here and there later than ten year ago. "'But how could it have been done?' said Mary. He was examining a branch of a standard rose, and he shook his head. 
I, how could it, he murmured, with the door locked and the key buried? Mistress Mary always felt that however many years she lived, she could never forget that first morning when her garden began to grow. Of course it did seem to begin to grow for her that morning. When Dickon began to clear places to plant seeds, she remembered what Basil had sung at her when he wanted to tease her. "'Are there any flowers that look like bells?' she inquired. "'Lilies of the rally does,' he answered, digging away with the trowel. "'And there's Canterbury bells and Camanulas.' "'Let's plant some,' said Mary. "'There's lilies of the valley here already. I saw them. "'There's lilies of the valley here already. I saw them. "'They'll have grown too close and we'll have to separate them. "'But there's plenty. "'The other ones take two years to bloom from seed, "'but I can bring you some bits of plants from my cottage garden. "'Why does the want them?' "'Then Mary told him about Basil and his brothers and sisters in India "'and of how she had hated them, "'and of their calling her Mistress Mary quite contrary.' they used to dance round and sing at me they sang mistress mary quite contrary how does your garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells and marigolds all in a row i just remembered it and it made me wonder if there were really flowers like silver bells she frowned a little and gave her trowel a rather spiteful dig into the earth i wasn't as contrary as they were but dickon laughed Eh, he said, and as he crumbled the rich black soil, he saw he was sniffing up the scent of it. There doesn't seem to be no need for one to be contrary when there's flowers and such like, and such lots of friendly wild things running about making home for themselves, or building nests and singing and whistling, does there? Mary, kneeling by him, holding the seeds, looked at him and stopped frowning. Dickon, she said, you're as nice as Martha said you were. I like you, and you make the fifth person. I never thought I should like five people. Dickon sat on his heels, as Martha did when she was polishing the grate. He did look funny and delightful, Mary thought, with his round blue eyes and red cheeks and happy-looking turned-up nose. Only five folks the likes, he said. Who was the other four? Your mother and Martha. Mary checked them off on her fingers. And the robin and Ben Weatherstaff. Dickon laughed so that he was obliged to stifle the sound by putting his arm over his mouth. "'I know the thinks I'm a queer lad,' he said, "'but I thinks thou'rt the queerest little lass I ever saw.' Then Mary did a strange thing. She leaned forward and asked him a question she'd never dreamed of asking any one before. And she tried to ask it in Yorkshire, because that was his language, and in India a native was always pleased if you knew his speech. "'Does thou like me?' she asked. "'Eh,' he answered heartily, "'that I does.' I likes the wonderful, and so does the robin, I do believe. That's two, then, said Mary. That's two for me. And then they began to work harder than ever and more joyfully. Mary was startled and sorry when she heard the big clock in the courtyard strike the hour of her midday dinner. I shall have to go, she said mournfully, and you will have to go too, won't you? Dickon grinned. My dinner's easy to carry about with me, he said. Mother always lets me put a bit of something in my pocket. He picked up his coat from the grass and brought out of a pocket a lumpy little bundle tied up in a quite clean coarse blue and white handkerchief. It held two thick pieces of bread with a slice of something laid between them. It's oftenest naught but bread, he said, but I've got a fine slice of fat bacon with it today. Mary thought it looked a queer dinner, but he seemed ready to enjoy it. Run on and get thy victuals, he said. I'll be done with mine first. I'll get some more work done before I start back home. 
He sat down with his back against a tree. "'I'll call the robin up,' he said, "'and give him the rind of bacon to peck at. "'They likes a bit of fat wonderful.' Mary could scarcely bear to leave him. Suddenly it seemed as if he might be a sort of wood fairy who might be gone when she came into the garden again. He seemed too good to be true. She went slowly halfway to the door in the wall, and then she stopped and went back. "'Whatever happens, you—you would never tell?' she asked. His poppy-coloured cheeks were distended with his first big bite of bread and bacon, but he managed to smile encouragingly. "'If thou was a missile-thrush, and showed me where thy nest was, does I think I'd tell any one? Not me,' he said. "'Thou art as safe as a missile-thrush.' And she was quite sure she was. End of chapter 11 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Twelve of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Might I have a bit of earth? Mary ran so fast that she was rather out of breath when she reached her room. Her hair was ruffled on her forehead, and her cheeks were bright pink. Her dinner was waiting on the table, and Martha was waiting near it. That's a bit late," she said. "Where's the bin?" "I've seen Dickon," said Mary. "I've seen Dickon." I knew he'd come, said Martha exultantly. How does the like him? I think, I think he's beautiful, said Mary in a determined voice. Martha looked rather taken aback, but she looked pleased too. Well, she said, he's the best lad as ever was born, but us never thought he was handsome. His nose turns up too much. I like it to turn up, said Mary. And his eyes are so round, said Martha, a trifle doubtful. "'Though they're a nice colour. "'I like them round,' said Mary. "'And they are exactly the colour of the sky over the moor.' "'Martha beamed with satisfaction. "'Mother says he made them that colour "'with always looking up at the birds and the clouds. "'But he has got a big mouth, hasn't he now?' "'I love his big mouth,' said Mary obstinately. "'I wish mine were just like it.' "'Martha chuckled delightedly. "'It'd look rare and funny in thy bit of a face.' she said, but I knowed it would be that way when the saw him. How did the light the seeds in the garden tools? How did you know he brought them? asked Mary. Eh, I never thought of him not bringing em. He'd be sure to bring em if they was in Yorkshire. He's such a trusty lad. Mary was afraid that she might begin to ask difficult questions, but she did not. She was very much interested in the seeds and gardening tools, and there was only one moment when Mary was frightened. This was when she began to ask why the flowers were to be planted. "'Who did they ask about it?' she inquired. "'I haven't asked anybody yet,' said Mary, hesitating. "'Well, I wouldn't ask the head gardener. His two grand Mr. Roaches.' "'I've never seen him,' said Mary. "'I've only seen undergardeners and Ben Weatherstaff.' "'If I was you, I'd ask Ben Weatherstaff,' advised Martha. "'He's not half as bad as he looks, for all is so crabbed.' Mr. Craven lets him do what he likes because he was here when Mrs. Craven was alive and he used to make her laugh. She liked him. Perhaps he'd find you a corner somewhere out of the way. If it was out of the way, no one wanted it. No one could mind me having it, could they? Mary said anxiously. There wouldn't be no reason, answered Martha. You wouldn't do no harm. 
Mary ate her dinner as quickly as she could, and when she rose from the table she was going to run to her room to put on her hat again, but Martha stopped her. "'Got something to tell you,' she said. "'I thought I'd let you eat your dinner first. Mr. Craven come back this morning, and I think he wants to see you.' Mary turned quite pale. "'Oh!' she said. "'Why? Why? He didn't want to see me when I came. I heard Pitcher say he didn't.' Well, explained Martha, Mrs. Medlock says it's because of mother. She was walking to Thwaite Village, and she met him. She had never spoke to him before, but Mrs. Craven had been to our cottage two or three times. He had forgot, but mother hadn't, and she made bold to stop him. I don't know what she said to him about you, but she said something as to put him in the mind to see you before he goes away again to-morrow. Oh, cried Mary, is he going away to-morrow? I'm so glad. It's going for a long time. He mayn't come back till autumn or winter. He's going to travel in foreign places. He's always doing it. Oh, I'm so glad, so glad, said Mary, thankfully. If he did not come back until winter or even autumn, there would be time to watch the secret garden come alive. Even if he found out then and took it away from her, she would have had that much at least. When do you think he will want to see? She did not finish the sentence because the door opened and Mrs. Medlock walked in. She had on her best black dress and cap, and her collar was fastened with a large brooch with a picture of a man's face on it. It was a coloured photograph of Mr. Medlock, who had died years ago, and she always wore it when she was dressed up. She looked nervous and excited. "'Your hair's rough,' she said quickly. "'Go and brush it. Martha, help her to slip on her best dress. Mr. Craven sent me to bring her to him in his study.' All the pink left Mary's cheeks. Her heart began to thump, and she felt herself changing into a stiff, plain, silent child again. She did not even answer Mrs. Medlock, but turned and walked into her bedroom, followed by Martha. She said nothing while her dress was changed and her hair brushed, and after she was quite tidy she followed Mrs. Medlock down the corridors in silence. What was there for her to say? She was obliged to go and see Mr. Craven, and he would not like her, and she would not like him. She knew what he would think of her. She was taken to a part of the house she had not been into before. At last Mrs. Medlock knocked at a door, and when someone said, "'Come in,' they entered the room together. A man was sitting in an armchair before the fire, and Mrs. Medlock spoke to him. "'This is Miss Mary, sir,' she said. "'You can go and leave her here. I will ring for you when I want you to take her away,' said Mr. Craven. When she went out and closed the door, Mary could only stand waiting, a plain little thing, twisting her thin hands together. She could see that the man in the chair was not so much a hunchback as a man with a high, rather crooked shoulders. And he had black hair streaked with white. He turned his head over his high shoulders and spoke to her. "'Come here,' he said. Mary went to him. He was not ugly. His face would have been handsome if it had not been so miserable. He looked as if the sight of her worried and fretted him, and as if he did not know what in the world to do with her. "'Are you well?' he asked. "'Yes,' answered Mary. "'Do they take good care of you?' "'Yes.' He rubbed his forehead fretfully as he looked her over. "'You are very thin,' he said. "'I'm getting fatter,' Mary answered in what she knew was her stiffest way. "'What an unhappy face he had!' His black eyes seemed as if they scarcely saw her, as if they were seeing something else, and he could hardly keep his thoughts upon her. "'I forgot you,' he said. "'How could I remember you? I intended to send you a governess or a nurse or someone of that sort, but I forgot.' "'Please,' began Mary, 
Please. And then the lump in her throat choked her. What do you want to say? he inquired. I am... I am too big for a nurse, said Mary. And please... Please don't make me have a governess yet. He rubbed his forehead again and stared at her. That was what the Sowerby woman said, he muttered absent-mindedly. Then Mary gathered a scrap of courage. Is she... Is she Martha's mother? she stammered. Yes, I think so, he replied. She knows about children, said Mary. She has twelve. She knows. He seemed to rouse himself. What do you want to do? I want to play out of doors, Mary answered, hoping that her voice did not tremble. I never liked it in India. It makes me hungry here, and I am getting fatter. He was watching her. Mrs. Sowerby said it would do you good. Perhaps it will, he said. She thought you had better get stronger before you had a governess. It makes me feel strong when I play and the wind comes over the moor, argued Mary. Where do you play? he asked next. Everywhere, gasped Mary. Martha's mother sent me a skipping rope. I skip and run, and I look about to see if things are beginning to stick up out of the earth. I don't do any harm. Don't look so frightened, he said in a worried voice. You could not do any harm, a child like you. You may do what you like. Mary put her hand up to her throat because she was afraid he might see the excited lump which she felt jump into it. She came a step nearer to him. May I? she said tremulously. Her anxious little face seemed to worry him more than ever. Don't look so frightened, he exclaimed. Of course you may. I am your guardian, though I am a poor one for any child. I cannot give you time or attention. I am too ill and wretched and distracted. But I wish you to be happy and comfortable. I don't know anything about children. But Mrs. Medlock is to see that you have all you need. I sent for you today because Mrs. Sowerby said I ought to see you. Her daughter had talked about you. She thought you needed fresh air and freedom and running about. She knows all about children, Mary said again in spite of herself. She ought to, said Mr. Craven. I thought her rather bold to stop me in the moor, but she said uh, Mrs. Craven had been kind to her. It seemed hard for him to speak his dead wife's name. She is a respectable woman. Now I've seen you, I think she said sensible things. Play out of doors as much as you like. It's a big place, and you may go where you like and amuse yourself as you like. Is there anything you want? As if a sudden thought had struck him. Do you want toys, books, dolls? Might I? quavered Mary. Might I have a bit of earth? In her eagerness she did not realize how queer the words would sound, and that they were not the ones she had meant to say. Mr. Craven looked quite startled. Earth? he repeated. What do you mean? To plant seeds in, to, to make things grow, to, to see them come alive, Mary faltered. He gazed at her a moment, and then passed his hand quickly over his eyes. Do you care about gardens so much? he said slowly. I didn't know about them in India, said Mary. I was always ill and tired, and it was too hot. I sometimes made little beds in the sand and stuck flowers in them, but here it is different. Mr. Craven got up and began to walk slowly across the room. A bit of earth, he said to himself, and Mary thought that somehow she must have reminded him of something. When he stopped and spoke to her, his dark eyes looked almost soft and kind. You can have as much earth as you want, he said. You remind me of someone else who loved the earth and things that grow. When you see a bit of earth you want, with something like a smile, take it, child, and make it come alive. May I take it from anywhere, if it's not wanted? 
"'Anywhere,' he answered. "'There. You must go now. I am tired.' He touched the bell to call Mrs. Medlock. "'Good-bye. I shall be away all summer.' Mrs. Medlock came so quickly that Mary thought she must have been waiting in the corridor. "'Mrs. Medlock,' Mr. Craven said to her, "'now I have seen the child, I understand what Mrs. Sowerby meant. She must be less delicate before she begins lessons. Give her simple, healthy food. Let her run wild in the garden. Don't look after her too much. She needs liberty and fresh air and romping about. Mrs. Sowerby is to come and see her now and then, and she may sometimes go to the cottage.' Mrs. Medlock looked pleased. She was relieved to hear that she need not look after Mary too much. She had felt her a tiresome charge, and had indeed seen as little of her as she dared. In addition to this she was fond of Martha's mother. "'Thank you, sir,' she said. "'Susan Sowerby and me went to school together, and she's as sensible and good-hearted a woman as you'd find in a day's walk. I never had any children myself, and she's had twelve, and there never was healthier or better ones. Miss Mary can get no harm from them.' I'd always take Susan Sowerby's advice about children myself. She is what you might call healthy-minded, if you understand me. I understand, Mr. Craven answered. Take Miss Mary away now and send Pitcher to me. When Mrs. Medlock left her at the end of her own corridor, Mary flew back to her room. She found Martha waiting there. Martha had, in fact, hurried back after she had removed the dinner service. I can have my garden, cried Mary. I may have it where I like. I'm not going to have a governess for a long time. Your mother is coming to see me, and I may go to your cottage. He says a little girl like me could not do any harm, and I may do what I like. Anywhere. Eh, said Martha delightedly. That was nice of him, wasn't it? Martha, said Mary solemnly, he is really a nice man, only his face is so miserable and his forehead is all drawn together. She ran as quickly as she could to the garden. She had been away so much longer than she had thought she would, and knew Dickon would have set out early on his five-mile walk. When she slipped through the door under the ivy, she saw he was not working where she had left him. The gardening tools were laid together under a tree. She ran to them, looking all round the place, but there was no Dickon to be seen. He had gone away, and the secret garden was empty, except the robin who had just flown across the wall, and sat on a standard rose-bush watching her. "'It's gone!' she said woefully. Oh, was he, was he, was he only a wood fairy? Something white fastened to the standard rose-bush caught her eye. It was a piece of paper. In fact, it was a piece of the letter she had printed for Martha to send to Dickon. It was fastened on the bush with a long thorn, and in a minute she knew Dickon had left it there. There was some roughly printed letters on it and a sort of picture. At first she could not tell what it was. Then she saw it meant for a nest with a bird sitting on it. Underneath were the printed letters, and they said, I will come back. End of chapter 12 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 13 of The Secret Garden This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett Chapter 13 I Am Colin Mary took the picture back to the house when she went to her supper, and she showed it to Martha. Eh, said Martha with great pride. I never knew our Dickon was as clever as that. That there's a picture of a missile thrush on her nest, as large as life and twice as natural. Then Mary knew Dickon had meant the picture to be a message. 
He meant that she might be sure he would keep her secret. Her garden was her nest, and she was like a missile-thrush. Oh, how she did like that queer, common boy! She hoped he would come back the very next day, and she fell asleep looking forward to the next morning. But you never know what the weather will do in Yorkshire, particularly in the springtime. She was awakened in the night by the sound of rain beating with heavy drops against her window. It was pouring down in torrents, and the wind was wuthering round the corners and the chimneys of the high old house. Mary sat up in bed and felt miserable and angry. "'The rain is as contrary as I ever was,' she said. "'It came because it knew I did not want it.' She threw herself back on her pillow and buried her face. She did not cry, but she lay and hated the sound of the heavily beating rain. She hated the wind and its wuthering. She could not go to sleep again. The mournful sound kept her awake, and because she felt mournful herself. If she had felt happy, it would probably have lulled her to sleep. How it wuthered, and how the big raindrops poured down and beat against the pane. "'It sounds just like a person lost on the moor, and wandering on and on, crying,' she said. She had been lying awake, turning from side to side for about an hour, when suddenly something made her sit up in bed and turn her head toward the door, listening. She listened and listened. "'It isn't the wind now.' she said in a loud whisper. "'That isn't the wind. It is different. It is that crying I heard before.' The door of her room was ajar, and the sound came down the corridor, a far-off faint sound of fretful crying. She listened for a few minutes, and each minute she became more and more sure. She felt as if she must find out what it was. It seemed even stranger than the secret garden and the buried key. Perhaps the fact that she was in a rebellious mood made her bold. She put her foot out of bed and stood on the floor. "'I am going to find out what it is,' she said. "'Everybody is in bed, and I don't care about Mrs. Medlock. I don't care!' There was a candle by her bedside, and she took it up and went softly out of the room. The corridor looked very long and dark, but she was too excited to mind that. She thought she remembered the corner she must turn to find the short corridor with the door covered with tapestry the one Mrs. Medlock had come through the day she lost herself. The sound had come up that passage. She went on with her dim light, almost feeling her way, her heart beating so loud that she fancied she could hear it. The far-off, faint crying went on and led her. Sometimes it stopped for a moment or so, and then began again. Was this the right corner to turn? She stopped and thought. Yes, it was. Down this passage, and then to the left, and then up two broad steps, and then to the right again. Yes, there was the tapestry door. She pushed it open very gently, and closed it behind her, and she stood in the corridor, and could hear the crying quite plainly, though it was not loud. It was on the other side of the wall at her left, and a few yards further on there was a door. She could see a glimmer of light coming from beneath it. The someone was crying in that room, and it was quite a young someone. So she walked to the door and pushed it open, and there she was standing in the room. It was a big room with ancient handsome furniture in it. There was a low fire glowing faintly on the hearth, and on a night-light burning by the side of a covered four-poster bed hung with brocade, and on the bed was lying a boy crying fretfully. Mary wondered if she was in a real place, or if she had fallen asleep again and was dreaming without knowing it. The boy had a sharp, delicate face the colour of ivory, and he seemed to have eyes too big for it. He had also a lot of hair which tumbled over his forehead in heavy locks and made his thin face seem smaller. He looked like a boy who had been ill, but he was crying more as if he were tired and cross than if he were in pain. 
Mary stood near the door with her candle in her hand, holding her breath. Then she crept across the room, and as she drew nearer the light attracted the boy's attention, and he turned his head on his pillow and stared at her, his grey eyes opening so wide that they seemed immense. "'Who are you?' he said at last in a half-frightened whisper. "'Are you a ghost?' "'No, I'm not,' Mary answered, her own whisper sounding half-frightened. "'Are you one?' He stared and stared and stared. Mary could not help noticing what strange eyes he had. They were agate grey, and they looked too big for his face because they had black lashes all round them. "'No,' he replied after waiting a moment or so. "'I am Colin.' "'Who is Colin?' she faltered. "'I am Colin Craven. Who are you?' "'I am Mary Lennox. Mr. Craven is my uncle.' "'He is my father,' said the boy. "'Your father?' gasped Mary. "'No one ever told me he had a boy. Why didn't they?' "'Come here,' he said, still keeping his strange eyes fixed on her with an anxious expression. She came close to the bed, and he put out his hand and touched her. "'You are real, aren't you?' he said. "'I have such real dreams very often. You might be one of them.' Mary had slipped on a woolen wrapper before she had left her room, and she put a piece of it between her fingers. "'Rub that and see how thick and warm it is,' she said. "'I'll pinch you a little, if you like, to show you how real I am. For a minute I thought you might be a dream, too.' "'Where did you come from?' he asked. "'From my own room. The wind weathered, so I couldn't go to sleep, and I heard someone crying and wanted to find out who it was. What were you crying for?' "'Because I couldn't go to sleep either, and my head ached. Tell me your name again.' "'Mary Lennox. Did no one ever tell you I'd come to live here?' He was still fingering the fold of her wrapper, but he began to look a little more as if he believed in her reality. "'No,' he answered. "'They daren't.' "'Why?' asked Mary. "'Because I should have been afraid you would see me. I won't let people see me and talk me over.' "'Why?' Mary asked again, feeling more mystified every moment. "'Because I am like this always, ill and having to lie down. My father won't let people talk me over either. The servants are not allowed to speak about me. If I live I may be a hunchback, but I shan't live. My father hates to think I may be like him. Oh, what a queer house this is, Mary said. What a queer house. Everything is kind of secret. Rooms are locked up, and gardens are locked up, and, and you! Have you been locked up? No, I stay in this room because I don't want to be moved out of it. It tires me too much. Does your father come and see you? Mary ventured. Sometimes, generally when I am asleep, he doesn't want to see me. Why? Mary could not help asking again. A sort of angry shadow passed over the boy's face. My mother died when I was born, and it makes him wretched to look at me. He thinks I don't know. But I've heard people talking. He almost hates me. "'He hates the garden because she died,' said Mary, half speaking to herself. "'What garden?' the boy asked. "'Oh, just—just just the garden she used to like,' Mary stammered. "'Have you been here always?' "'Nearly always. Sometimes I have been taken to places at the seaside, but I won't stay because people stare at me. I used to wear an iron thing to keep my back straight, but a grand doctor came from London to see me and said it was stupid.' He told them to take it off and keep me out in the fresh air. 
I hate fresh air, and I don't want to go out. I didn't when first I came here, said Mary. Why do you keep looking at me like that? Because of the dreams that are so real, he answered rather fretfully. Sometimes when I open my eyes, I don't believe I'm awake. We're both awake, said Mary. She glanced round the room with its high ceiling and shadowy corners and dim firelight. It looks quite like a dream, and it's the middle of the night, and everybody in the house is asleep. Everybody but us. We are wide awake. I don't want it to be a dream, the boy said restlessly. Mary thought of something all at once. If you don't like people to see you, she began, do you want me to go away? He still held the fold of her wrapper, and he gave it a little pull. No, he said. I should be sure you were a dream if you went. If you are real, sit down on the big footstool and talk. I want to hear about you. Mary put down her candle on the table near the bed and sat down on the cushioned stool. She did not want to go away at all. She wanted to stay in the mysterious hidden-away room and talk to the mysterious boy. "'What do you want me to tell you?' she said. He wanted to know how long she had been at Misselthwaite. He wanted to know which corridor her room was on. He wanted to know what she had been doing, if she disliked the moor as he disliked it, where she had lived before she came to Yorkshire. She answered all these questions and many more, and he lay back on his pillow and listened. He made her tell him a great deal about India and about her voyage across the ocean. She found out that because he had been an invalid he had not learned things as other children had. One of his nurses had taught him to read when he was quite little, and he was always reading and looking at pictures in splendid books. Though his father rarely saw him when he was awake, he was given all sorts of wonderful things to amuse himself. He never seemed to have been amused, however. He could have anything he asked for, and was never made to do anything he did not like to do. "'Everyone is obliged to do what pleases me,' he said indifferently. "'It makes me ill to be angry. No one believes I shall live to grow up.' He said it as if he were so accustomed to the idea that it had ceased to matter to him at all. He seemed to like the sound of Mary's voice. As she went on talking, he listened in a drowsy, interested way. Once or twice she wondered if he was not gradually falling into a doze, but at last he asked a question which opened up a new subject. "'How old are you?' he asked. "'I am ten, answered Mary, forgetting herself for the moment. "'And so are you.' "'How do you know that?' he demanded in a surprised voice. "'Cause when you were born the garden door was locked and the key was buried, and it has been locked up for ten years.' Colin half sat up, turning toward her, leaning on his elbows. "'What garden door was locked? Who did it? Where was the key buried?' he exclaimed, as if he were suddenly very much interested. "'It—it it was the garden Mr. Craven hates,' said Mary nervously. "'He locked the door. No one—no one knew where he buried the key.' "'What sort of garden is it?' Colin persisted eagerly. "'No one has been allowed to go into it for ten years,' was Mary's careful answer. But it was too late to be careful. He was too much like herself. He too had nothing to think about, and the idea of a hidden garden attracted him as it had attracted her. He asked question after question. Where was it? Had she never looked for the door? Had she never asked the gardeners? "'They won't talk about it,' said Mary. "'I think they have been told not to answer questions.' "'I would make them,' said Colin. "'Could you?' Mary faltered, beginning to feel frightened. "'If he could make people answer questions, who knew what might happen?' "'Everyone is obliged to please me. I told you that,' 
he said. If I were to live, this place would sometime belong to me. They all know that. I would make them tell me. Mary had not known that she herself had been spoiled, but she could see quite plainly that this mysterious boy had been. He thought that the whole world belonged to him. How peculiar he was, and how coolly he spoke of not living. "'Do you think you won't live?' she asked, partly because she was curious, and partly in hope of making him forget the garden. "'I don't suppose I shall,' he answered as indifferently as he had spoken before. "'Ever since I remember anything, I have heard people say I shan't. At first I thought I was too little to understand, and now they think I don't hear. But I do. My doctor is my father's cousin. It's quite poor, and if I die, he will have all Misselthwaite when my father is dead. I should think he wouldn't want me to live.' "'Do you want to live?' inquired Mary. "'No,' he answered in a cross, tired fashion. "'But I don't want to die.' and I feel ill, I lie here and think about it till I cry and cry. I've heard you crying three times, Mary said, but I did not know who it was. Were you crying about that? She did so want him to forget the garden. I dare say, he answered. Let us talk about something else. Talk about the garden. Don't you want to see it? Yes, answered Mary in a quite a low voice. I do, he went on persistently. I don't think I ever really wanted to see anything before, but I want to see that garden. I want the key dug up. I want the door unlocked. I would let them take me in my chair. That would be getting fresh air. I'm going to make them open the door. He had become quite excited, and his strange eyes began to shine like stars and looking more immense than ever. They have to please me, he said. I will make them take me there, and I will let you go too. Mary's hands clutched each other. Everything would be spoiled, everything. Dickon would never come back. She would never again feel like a mistle-thrush with a safe hidden nest. Oh, don't! 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 Don't do that! she cried out. He stared as if he thought she had gone crazy. Why? he exclaimed. You said you wanted to see it. I do, she answered, almost with a sob in her throat. But if you make them open the door and take you in like that, it will never be a secret again. He leaned still farther forward. A secret, he said. What do you mean? Tell me. Mary's words almost tumbled over one another. You see, you see, she panted, if no one knows but ourselves, if there was a door, hidden somewhere under the ivy, if there was, and we could find it, and we could slip through it together and shut it behind us, and no one knew. Anyone was inside, and we called it our garden and pretended that that we were missile thrushes and it was our nest, and if we played there almost every day and dug and planted seeds and made it all come alive. Is it dead? he interrupted her. It will be soon if no one cares for it, she went on. The bulls will live, but the roses. He stopped her again as excited as she was herself. What are bulbs? he put in quickly. They're daffodils and lilies and snowdrops. They are working in the earth now, pushing up pale green points because the spring is coming. Is the spring coming? he said. What is it like? You don't see it in rooms if you are ill. It is the sun shining on the rain, and the rain falling on the sunshine, and things pushing up and working under the earth, said Mary. If the garden was a secret and we could get into it, we could watch the things grow bigger every day and see how many roses are alive. Don't you see? Oh, don't you see how much nicer it would be if it was a secret? He dropped back on his pillow and lay there with an odd expression on his face. I never had a secret, he said, except that one about not living to grow up. 
They don't know I know that. So it is sort of a secret. But I like this kind better. If you won't make them take you to the garden, pleaded Mary, perhaps I feel almost sure I can find out how to get in some time. And then, if the doctor wants you to go out in your chair, and you can always do what you want to do, perhaps, perhaps we might find some boy who would push you, and we could go alone, and it would always be a secret garden. I should like that, he said very slowly. His eyes looked dreamy. I should like that. I should not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Mary began to recover her breath and felt safer, because the idea of keeping the secret seemed to please him. She almost felt sure that if she kept on talking and could make him see the garden in his mind as she had seen it, he would like it so much that he could not bear to think that everybody might tramp into it when they chose. "'I'll tell you what I think it would be like if we could go into it,' she said. "'It has been shut up so long, things have grown into a tangle, perhaps.' He lay quite still and listened while she went on talking about the roses which might have clambered from tree to tree and hung down, about the many birds which might have built their nests there because it was so safe. And then she told him about the robin and Ben Weatherstaff, and there was so much to tell about the robin, and it was so easy and safe to talk about it that she ceased to be afraid. The robin pleased him so much that he smiled until he looked almost beautiful, and at first Mary thought that he was even plainer than herself, with his big eyes and heavy locks of hair. "'I did not know birds could be like that,' he said. "'But if we stay in a room we never see things. What a lot of things, you know. I feel as if you had been inside that garden.' She did not know what to say, so she did not say anything. He evidently did not expect an answer, and the next moment he gave her a surprise. "'I'm going to let you look at something,' he said. "'Do you see that rose-coloured silk curtain hanging on the wall over the mantelpiece?' Mary had not noticed it before, but she looked up and saw it. It was a curtain of soft silk hanging over what seemed to be some picture. "'Yes,' she answered. "'There's a cord hanging from it,' said Colin. "'Go and pull it.' Mary got up, much mystified, and found the cord. When she pulled it, the silk curtain ran back on rings, and when it ran back, it uncovered a picture. It was a picture of a girl with a laughing face. She had bright hair tied up with a blue ribbon, and her gay, lovely eyes were exactly like Colin's unhappy ones, a gate grey, and looking twice as big as they really were, because of the black lashes all round them. "'She is my mother,' said Colin complainingly. I don't see why she died. Sometimes I hate her for doing it. How queer, said Mary. If she had lived, I believe I should not have been always ill, he grumbled. I dare say I should have lived too, and my father would not have hated to look at me. I dare say I should have had a strong back. Draw the curtain again. Mary did as she was told and returned to her footstool. She's much prettier than you, she said. Her eyes are just like yours. At least they are the same shape and colour. Why is the curtain drawn over her? He moved uncomfortably. I made them do it, he said. Sometimes I don't like to see her looking at me. She smiles too much when I am ill and miserable. Besides, she is mine, and I don't want everyone to see her. There were a few moments of silence, and then Mary spoke. What would Mrs. Medlock do if she found out that I had been here? She inquired. She would do as I told her, he answered and I should tell her that I wanted you to come here and talk to me every day. I am glad you came. So am I, said Mary. 
I will come as often as I can, but, she hesitated, I shall have to look every day for the garden door. Yes, you must, said Colin, and you can tell me about it afterward. He lay thinking a few minutes, as he had done before, and then he spoke again. I think you shall be a secret, too, he said. I will not tell them until they find out. I can always send the nurse out of the room and say that I want to be by myself. Do you know Martha? Yes, I know her very well, said Mary. She waits on me. He nodded his head toward the outer corridor. She is the one who is asleep in the other room. The nurse went away yesterday to stay all night with her sister, and she always makes Martha attend to me when she wants to go out. Martha should tell you when to come here. Then Mary understood Martha's troubled look when she had asked questions about the crying. "'Martha knew about you all the time,' she said. "'Yes, she often attends to me. The nurse likes to get away from me, and then Martha comes.' "'I've been here a long time,' said Mary. "'Shall I go away? Your eyes look sleepy.' "'I wish I could go to sleep before you leave me,' he said rather shyly. "'Shut your eyes,' said Mary, drawing her foot closer. "'And I will do what my Ayah used to do in India. "'I will pat your hand and stroke it and sing something quite low.' "'I should like that, perhaps,' he said drowsily. "'Somehow she was very sorry for him and did not want him to lie awake. "'So she leaned against the bed and began to stroke and pat his hand "'and sing a very low chanting song,' in Hindustani. "'That is nice,' he said, more drowsily still, and she went on chanting and stroking, but when she looked at him again his black lashes were lying close against his cheeks, for his eyes were shut and he was fast asleep. So she got up softly, took her candle, and crept away without making a sound. End of chapter 13 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Fourteen of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: A Young Rajah. The moor was hidden in mist when the morning came, and the rain had not stopped pouring down. There could be no going out of doors. Martha was so busy that Mary had no opportunity of talking to her. But in the afternoon she asked her to come and sit with her in the nursery. She came, bringing the stocking she was always knitting when she was doing nothing else. "'What's the matter with thee?' she asked as soon as they sat down. "'Thou looks as if there'd something to say.' "'I have. I found out what the crying was,' said Mary. Martha let her knitting drop on her knee and gazed at her with startled eyes. "'Thou hasn't!' she exclaimed. "'Never!' "'I heard it in the night,' Mary went on, "'and I got up and went to see where it came from.' It was Colin. I found him. Martha's face became red with fright. Eh, uh, Miss Mary, she said, half crying. They shouldn't have done it. They shouldn't. They'll get me in trouble. I never told thee nothing about him. But they'll get me in trouble. I shall lose my place, and what'll Mother do? You won't lose your place, said Mary. He was glad I came. We talked and talked, and he said he was glad I came. Was he? cried Martha. Art thou sure? That doesn't know what it's like when anything vexes him. It's a big lad to cry like a baby, but when he's in a passion he'll fair scream just to frighten us. He knows us daren't call our souls our own. He wasn't vexed, said Mary. I asked him if I should go away, and he made me stay. He asked me questions, and I sat on a big footstool and talked to him about India and about the robin and gardens. He wouldn't let me go. 
He let me see his mother's picture. Before I left him, I sang him to sleep. Martha fairly gasped with amazement. I can scarcely believe thee, she protested. It's as if they'd walked straight into a lion's den. If he'd been like he is most times, he'd have thrown himself into one of his tantrums and roused the house. He won't let strangers look at him. He let me look at him. I looked at him all the time, and he looked at me. We stared, said Mary. I don't know what to do, cried agitated Martha. If Mrs. Medlock finds out, she'll think I broke orders and told thee, and I shall be packed back to mother. He's not going to tell Mrs. Medlock anything about it yet. It's to be a sort of secret just at first, said Mary firmly, and he says everybody is obliged to do as he pleases. Aye, that's true enough, the bad lad, sighed Martha, wiping her forehead with her apron. He says Mrs. Medlock must, and he wants me to come and talk to him every day, and you're to tell me when he wants me. Me, said Martha, I shall lose my place. I shall, for sure. You can't if you are doing what he wants you to do, and everybody is ordered to obey him, Mary argued. Does that mean to say, cried Martha with wide-open eyes, that he was nice to thee? I think he almost liked me, Mary answered. Then there must have bewitched him, decided Martha, drawing a long breath. Do you mean magic? inquired Mary. I've heard about magic in India, but I can't make it. I just went into his room, and I was surprised to see him. I stood and stared, and then he turned round and stared at me. And he thought I was a ghost or a dream, and I thought perhaps he was. And it was so queer being there alone together in the middle of the night, and not knowing each other. And we began to ask each other questions. And when I asked him if I must go away, he said I must not. The world's coming to an end, gasped Martha. What is the matter with him? asked Mary. Nobody knows for certain, said Martha. Mr. Craven went off his head like when he was born. The doctors thought he'd have to be put in asylum. It was because Mrs. Craven died like a soldier. He wouldn't set eyes on the baby. He just raved and said it'd be another hunchback like him and it'd better die. Is Colin a hunchback? Mary asked. He didn't look like one. He isn't yet, said Martha. But he began all wrong. Mother said there was enough trouble and raging in the house to set any child wrong. They was afraid his back was weak and they've always been taking care of it, keeping him lying down and not letting him walk. Once they made him wear a brace, but he fretted so he was downright ill. Then a big doctor came to see him and made them take it off. He talked to the other doctor quite rough, in a polite way. He said there had been too much medicine and too much letting him have his own way. I think he's a very spoiled boy, said Mary. He's the worst young note as ever was, said Martha. I won't say as he hasn't been ill a good bit. He's had coughs and colds that's nearly killed him two or three times. Once he had rheumatic fever and once he had typhoid. Eh, uh, Mrs. Medlock did get a fright then. He'd been out of his head and she was talking to the nurse thinking he didn't know nothing. And she said, he'll die this time sure enough and best thing for him and for everybody. And she looked at him, and there he was with his big eyes open, staring at her as sensible as she was herself. She didn't know what had happened, but he just stared at her and says, "'You give me some water and stop talking.' "'Do you think he'll die?' asked Mary. "'Mother says there's no reason why any child should live that gets no fresh air and doesn't do nothing, but lie on his back and read picture books and take medicine. He's weak and hates the trouble of being taken outdoors. And he gets cold so easy.' He says it makes him ill. Mary sat and looked at the fire. I wonder, 
she said slowly, if it would not do him good to go out into a garden and watch things growing. It did me good. One of the worst fits he ever had, said Martha, was one time I took him out, where the roses is by the fountain. He'd been reading in a paper about people getting something he called rose cold, and he began to sneeze and said he'd got it, and then the new gardeners didn't know the rules, passed by and looked at him curious. He threw himself into a passion, and he said he looked at him because he was going to be a hunchback, cried himself into a fever, and was ill at night. If he ever gets angry at me, I'll never go and see him again, said Mary. He'll have thee if he wants thee, said Martha. They may as well know that at the start. Very soon afterward a bell rang, and she rolled up her knitting. I dare say the nurse wants me to stay with him a bit, she said. I hope he's in a good temper. She was out of the room about ten minutes, and then she came back with a puzzled expression. "'Well, thou hast bewitched him,' she said. "'He's up on his sofa with his picture-books. He's told the nurse to stay away until six o'clock. I'm to wait in the next room. The minute she was gone he called me to him and says, "'I want Mary Lennox to come and talk to me, and remember you're not to tell anyone. You'd better go as quick as you can.' Mary was quite willing to go quickly. She did not want to see Colin as much as she wanted to see Dickon but she wanted to see him very much. There was a bright fire on the hearth when she entered his room, and in the daylight she saw it was a very beautiful room indeed. There were rich colours in the rugs and hangings, and pictures and books on the walls which made it look glowing and comfortable, even in spite of the grey sky and falling rain. Colin looked rather like a picture himself. He was wrapped in a velvet dressing-gown and against a big brocaded cushion. He had a red spot on each cheek. "'Come in,' he said. "'I've been thinking about you all morning.' "'I've been thinking about you, too,' answered Mary. "'You don't know how frightened Martha is. "'She says Mrs. Medlock will think she told me about you, "'and then she will be sent away.' "'He frowned. "'Go and tell her to come here,' he said. "'She is in the next room.' "'Mary went and brought her back. "'Poor Martha was shaking in her shoes. "'Colin was still frowning.' "'Have you to do what I please, or have you not?' he demanded. "'I have to do what you please, sir,' Martha faltered, turning quite red. "'Has Medlock to do what I please?' "'Everybody has, sir,' said Martha. "'Well, then, if I order you to bring Miss Mary to me, how can Miss Medlock send you away if she finds it out?' "'Please don't let her, sir,' pleaded Martha. "'I'll send her away if she dares to say a word about such a thing.' said Master Craven grandly. She wouldn't like that, I can tell you. Thank you, sir, bobbing a curtsy. I want to do my duty, sir. What I want is your duty, said Colin more grandly still. I'll take care of you. Now go away. When the door closed behind Martha, Colin found Mistress Mary gazing at him as if he had set her wondering. Why do you look at me like that? he asked her. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about two things. What are they? Sit down and tell me. This is the first one, said Mary, seating herself on the big stool. Once in India I saw a boy who was a rajah. He had rubies and emeralds and diamonds stuck all over him. He spoke to his people just as you spoke to Martha. Everybody had to do everything he told them, in a minute. I think they would have been killed if they hadn't. I shall make you tell me about Rajah's presently, he said, but first tell me what the second thing was. I was thinking, said Mary, 
How different you are from Dickon. Who is Dickon? he said. What a queer name. She might as well tell him. She thought she could talk about Dickon without mentioning the secret garden. She had liked to hear Martha talk about him. Besides, she longed to talk about him. It would seem to bring him nearer. He is Martha's brother. He is twelve years old, she explained. He is not like anyone else in the world. He can charm foxes and squirrels and birds just as the natives in India charm snakes. He plays a very soft tune on a pipe, and they come and listen. There were some big books on a table at his side, and he dragged one suddenly toward him. There's a picture of a snake charmer in this, he exclaimed. Come and look at it. The book was a beautiful one with superb colored illustrations, and he turned to one of them. Can he do that? he asked eagerly. He played on his pipe, and they listened, Mary explained. But he doesn't call it magic. He says it's because he lives on more so much, and he knows their ways. He says he feels sometimes as if he was a bird or a rabbit himself he likes them so. I think he asks the robin questions. It seems as if they talk to each other in soft chirps. Colin lay back on his cushion, and his eyes grew larger and larger, and the spots on his cheeks burned. Tell me some more about him, he said. He knows all about eggs and nests, Mary went on, and he knows where foxes and badgers and otters live. He keeps them secrets so that other boys won't find their holes and frighten them. He knows about everything that grows or lives on the moor. Does he like the moor? said Colin. How can he when it's such a great, bare, dreary place? It's the most beautiful place, protested Mary. Thousands of lovely things grow on it, and there are thousands of little creatures all busy building nests and making holes and burrows and chippering and singing or squeaking to each other. They are so busy and having such fun under the earth or in the trees or heather. It's their world. How do you know all that? said Colin, turning on his elbow to look at her. I've never been there once, really, said Mary, suddenly remembering. I only drove over it in the dark. I thought it was hideous. Martha told me about it first, and then Dickon. When Dickon talks about it, you feel as if you saw things and heard them, and if you were standing in the heather with the sun shining and the gore smelling like honey, and all full of bees and butterflies. You never see anything if you were ill, said Colin restlessly. He looked like a person listening to a new sound in the distance and wondering what it was. "'You can't if you stay in a room,' said Mary. "'I couldn't go on the moor,' he said in a resentful tone. Mary was silent for a minute, and then she said something bold. "'You might, sometime.' He moved as if he were startled. "'Go on the moor? How could I? I'm going to die.' "'How do you know?' said Mary unsympathetically. She didn't like the way he had of talking about dying. She did not feel very sympathetic. She felt rather as if he almost boasted about it. "'Oh, I've heard it ever since I remember,' he answered crossly. "'They're always whispering about it and thinking I don't notice. They wish I would, too.' Mistress Mary felt quite contrary. She pinched her lips together. "'If they wished I would,' she said, "'I wouldn't. Who wishes you would?' The servants, and of course Dr. Craven, because he would get Misselthwaite and be rich instead of poor. Daren't say so, but he always looks cheerful when I am worse. When I had typhoid fever, his face got quite fat. I think my father wishes it too. I don't believe he does, said Mary quite obstinately. That made Colin turn and look at her again. Don't you? he said. And then he lay back on his cushion and was still as if he were thinking. And there was quite a long silence. 
Perhaps they were both of them thinking strange things children do not usually think. I like the Grand Doctor from London, because he made them take the iron thing off, said Mary at last. Did he say you were going to die? No. What did he say? He didn't whisper, Colin answered. Perhaps he knew I hated whispering. I heard him say one thing quite aloud. He said the lad might live if he put his mind to it, put him in the humour. It sounds as if he was in a temper. I'll tell you who will put you in the humour, perhaps, said Mary, reflecting. She felt as if she would like this thing to be settled one way or the other. I believe Dickon would. He's always talking about live things. He never talks about dead things or things that are ill. He's always looking up in the sky to watch birds flying, or looking down at the earth to see something growing. He has such round blue eyes, and they are so wide open with looking about. And he has such a big laugh with his wide mouth, and his cheeks are as red, as red as cherries. She pulled her stool nearer to the sofa, and her expression quite changed at the remembrance of the wide curving mouth and wide open eyes. See here, she said, don't let us talk about dying. I don't like it. Let us talk about living. Let us talk and talk about Dickon, and then we will look at your pictures. It was the best thing she could have said. To talk about Dickon meant to talk about the moor and about the cottage and the fourteen people who lived in it on sixteen shillings a week, and the children who got fat on the moor grass like wild ponies, and about Dickon's mother and the skipping rope and the moor with the sun on it, and about pale green points sticking up out of the black sod. And it was also alive that Mary talked more than she had ever talked before, and Colin both talked and listened as he had never done either before and they both began to laugh over nothings as children will when they are happy together. And they laughed so much that in the end they were making as much noise as if they had been two ordinary, healthy, natural ten-year-old creatures, instead of hard little unloving girl and a sickly boy who believed that he was going to die. They enjoyed themselves so much that they forgot the pictures, and they forgot about the time. They had been laughing quite loudly over Ben Weatherstaff and his robin, and Colin was actually sitting up as if he had forgotten about his weak back, when he suddenly remembered something. "'Do you know there is one thing we have never once thought of?' he said. "'We are cousins.' It seemed so queer that they had talked so much and never remembered the simple thing that they laughed more than ever because they had got into the humour to laugh at anything. And in the midst of the fun the door opened and in walked Dr. Craven and Mrs. Medlock. Dr. Craven started in actual alarm, and Mrs. Medlock almost fell back because he had accidentally bumped against her. "'Good Lord!' exclaimed poor Mrs. Medlock, with her eyes almost starting out of her head. "'Good Lord!' "'What is this?' said Dr. Craven, coming forward. "'What does it mean?' Then Mary was reminded of the boy Rajah again. Colin answered as if neither the doctor's alarm nor Mrs. Medlock's terror were of the slightest consequence. He was as little disturbed or frightened as if an elderly cat and dog had walked into the room. "'This is my cousin, Mary Lennox,' he said. "'I asked her to come and talk to me. I like her. She must come and talk to me whenever I send for her.' Dr. Craven turned reproachfully to Mrs. Medlock. "'Oh, sir,' she panted, "'I don't know how it's happened. There's not a servant on the place that dare talk to. They all have their orders.' "'Nobody told her anything.' said Colin. She heard me crying and found me herself. I am glad she came. Don't be silly, Medlock. Mary saw that Dr. Craven did not look pleased, but it was quite plain that he dare not oppose his patient. He sat down by Colin and felt his pulse. 
"'I'm afraid there's been too much excitement. "'Excitement is not good for you, my boy,' he said. "'I should be excited if she kept away,' answered Colin, "'his eyes beginning to look dangerously sparkling. "'I'm better. She makes me better. "'The nurse must bring up her tea with mine. "'We will have tea together.' Mrs. Medlock and Dr. Craven looked at each other in a troubled way, but there was evidently nothing to be done. "'He does look rather better, sir,' ventured Mrs. Medlock, but, thinking the matter over, he looked better this morning before she came into the room. She came into the room last night. She stayed with me a long time. She sang a Hindustanti song to me, and it made me go to sleep,' said Colin. "'I was better when I wakened up. I wanted my breakfast. I want my tea now.' "'Tell Nurse Medlock.' Dr. Craven did not stay very long. He talked to the nurse for a few minutes when she came into the room and said a few words of warning to Colin. He must not talk too much. He must not forget that he was ill. He must not forget that he was easily tired. Mary thought that there seemed to be a number of uncomfortable things he was not to forget. Colin looked fretful and kept his strange black-lashed eyes fixed on Dr. Craven's face. "'I want to forget it,' he said at last. She makes me forget it. That is why I want her. Dr. Craven did not look happy when he left the room. He gave a puzzled glance at the little girl sitting on a large stool. She had become a stiff, silent child again as soon as he entered, and he could not see what the attraction was. The boy actually did look brighter, however, and he sighed rather heavily as he went down the corridor. They are always wanting me to eat things when I don't want to said Colin, as the nurse brought in the tea and put it on the table by the sofa. "'Now if you'll eat, I will. Those muffins look so nice and hot. Tell me about Rajas.' End of chapter 14 Recording by Ashley Jane Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.